Well, the funny part of radio is you often performed many colorful roles and many colorful scripts, but in a plain, drab studio. So there's nothing visual to remember. It's all mental. It's all in your memory. Whereas if you had worked in a motion picture, you might have been out on a set out in the desert or somewhere, mm -hmm. and you would remember it because of that. Year after year, as you worked in radio, it was so wonderful. All you did was wear a decent suit and carry a pencil with you. And you came in and marked your script and went to work, and then you went home. And people didn't know you, which was rather pleasant. You could go anywhere, and you weren't recognized. And if you're shy at all, and I think maybe I am a little bit, it's kind of nice. We were riding along the open country and had been observing a very beautiful sunset. As the sun dipped over the western horizon, I looked to my right, and there in the sky were three small lights, which to me appeared to be three very small clouds. I looked steadily, and I said, no, they are not clouds, they are airplanes. Then I called my husband's attention to it, and he said, no, those are not airplanes, they are lights. And we observed them very closely, but being in motion ourselves, to us they were motionless, because we didn't stop. As we rode along, for something over a mile, they hung there in the sky, and they were, to us, had the appearance of tubes of fluorescent light, of beautiful, silvery, pink-tinged moonlight. And I said to my husband, that gives me a feeling that God is trying to say something to us. And uh, we have had that feeling within us since. Well, I think there's more to it than meets the eye, and I think it's more to it than what they're writing about. Personally, I don't think such a thing exists. I don't see how it could. I have uh, a confidence that something on that order may exist. I lived in North Carolina in 1903 when uh, the uh, reporter for the New York World was fired for reporting that the Wright brothers flew. Some say they're stars, some say they're enemy action, and all kinds of things, but I really don't know. There must be something to it. Purely what? imagination. I didn't believe it at first, but now I'm beginning to believe it. Most of the thing is a flying saucer. Well, I believe uh, President Truman, like the rest of us, has the right to his own opinion. The mystery of the flying saucers is becoming fantastic with a whole string of witnesses in eight states all over the country and in Canada declaring that they have seen the weird objects speeding through the air. And these include a U.S. meteorologist, also the lieutenant governor of Idaho. Well, what's it all about? Are the flying saucers some kind of secret weapons, guided missiles, either American or foreign? Or are people just seeing things? Remember that aviator flying over the Pacific Northwest? Over Mount Rainier, he told of seeing a whole flock of objects shaped like disks, 
going at great speed over mountain country. Since then, dozens of witnesses have come forward about them. The U.S. meteorologist is E.E. E. Unger of Louisville, Kentucky. He says that he saw a circular object speeding through the air on Tuesday night, going around 100 miles an hour, giving off an orange light. The lieutenant governor of Idaho, Donald Whitehead, he says he saw comet-like objects and estimated their speed at about 1,200 miles an hour. At San Francisco, a sergeant of the state highway patrol troops, about the size of a football, says he. He adds that he saw them whizzing over San Francisco Bay while he was on duty at the Golden Gate Bridge. And in Denver, Colorado, Henry Martin, W. Herod, and Harry Denny all insist that they caught a glimpse of a flock of bright objects traveling at about 5,000 feet last night. Martin says they looked like coffee can tops flying southwest. Harry Denny just repeated the famous words of the Hoosier poet Riley, What's the world a-coming to? Dr. and Mrs. C.K. Gunn and two friends say they saw strange objects moving at terrific speeds through the sky. And the latest is a statement by the U.S. Army Air Forces. They've been investigating these stories of the flying saucers. And what have they discovered? Nothing at all. The evidence they have been able to find is so nebulous and vague that they have dropped the investigation. We feel it's all up in the clouds and we can't do anything until we get more concrete information, said the spokesman for the Army Air Forces today. Flying saucers, spook lights, Foo Fighters, fiery disks, glowing orbs, UFOs. These are just some of the names we've given them. What are they? Where are they from? Who's in them? While general consensus has never fully agreed to their existence, tonight we'll explore the unknown together. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 129. My name is James Scully. Tonight, in honor of the 75th anniversary of the Roswell incident, we focus on radio and the mid-century flying saucer craze. People have been seeing objects in the sky and having close encounters since the beginning of recorded history. But tonight, we'll begin in 1947 and end in 1955. Thanks to radio, we can track the hysteria of this period. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Screaming Jay Hawkins' shock rock version of I Put a Spell on You. It's perfect for this kind of mania. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. You can also support these shows 
for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. And now for news of our own West Coast, we take you to Los Angeles and the report of Byron Palmer. Anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout ordered by the 4th Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. The unidentified object, which some sources thought might be a blimp, moved slowly down the Pacific coast from Santa Monica and disappeared south of Long Beach. Army officials declined to comment on the possibility that the object might have been a blimp. However, it required nearly 30 minutes to travel some 25 miles, far slower than an airplane. Watchers on the rooftop of the Columbia Broadcasting Building in the heart of Hollywood could plainly see the flashes of guns and searchlights sweeping the skies in a wide arc along the coastal area. The impression of the shells could be felt in downtown Los Angeles, 15 miles away. Early on the morning of February 25, 1942, several aerial objects were spotted over Los Angeles. It triggered the firing of thousands of anti-aircraft rounds. Until they receive a full report of the act. This was 10 weeks after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in Manila. Initially, it was thought to be a Japanese attack, but shortly after, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox said it was a false alarm. The hysteria was blamed on a weather balloon. During World War II, soldiers reported seeing metallic spheres in the sky. The Allies dubbed them Foo Fighters. In 1946, numerous UFO sightings were reported in Sweden. Known as ghost rockets, they put the Swedish defense staff on high alert. No confirmation of what they were was ever achieved. All of these paled in comparison to what happened in Washington State in June of 1947. This is Edward R. Murrow. We're going to talk about flying saucers. We're going to talk about them from the standpoint of reporters, not as comedians, not as sensationalists. For the past three years, a large number of perfectly sane and reliable people have been involved in this flying saucer business. Even those of us who have never seen one have become involved. We read about them, talk about them, wonder about these reports of strange phenomena in the skies. So almost from the start, CBS has been following the story. We have been collecting material on flying saucer observations for many months, checking, cross-checking, trying to track down leads, no matter how far afield they took us. This, tonight, is our report. June 24th, a transport with 32 Marines on board crashed near Mount Rainier, Washington. A private pilot named Kenneth Arnold was flying from Chehalis to Yakima on a business trip. Arnold had six years of experience flying in and around the rugged Mount Rainier terrain. He went off course to look for wreckage. 
on April 6, 1950, he spoke with Edward R. Murrow about his experience. It was while I was searching for this crash that I noticed a terrific blue flash past nose of my airplane. I noticed that the flash came from a very peculiar-looking object that were rapidly approaching Mountaineer at about 107 degrees. This chain of objects were nine in number. Uh, I assumed at the time they were a new formation or a new type of jet. So I was baffled by the fact that they did not have any tails. It passed almost directly in front of me, but at a distance of about 23 miles, which is not very great in the air. I judged their wingspan to be at least 100 feet across. The sighting did not particularly disturb me at the time, except that I had never seen planes of that type. I never could understand at that time why the world got so upset about like this, that these things didn't seem to be a menace. I believe they had nothing to do with our Army and Air Force. As the objects passed Mount Rainier, Arnold turned his plane parallel to their course. He timed their rate of passage. They moved from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams, a distance about 50 miles, in 1 minute 42 seconds. That put their speed at over 700 miles per hour. That was three times faster than any manned aircraft in 1947. The next day, Arnold told his story to a newspaper in Pendleton, Oregon. The military questioned Arnold on three occasions, doubting his experience. That's right. Now, of course, some of the reports they did take from newspapers, which did not quote me properly. When I told the press, they misquoted me, and in the excitement of it all, uh, one newspaper and another one got it so snarled up that uh, nobody knew just exactly what they were talking about, I guess. These objects more or less fluttered like they were, uh, oh, I'd say boats on very rough water or a very rough air of some type. And when I described how they flew, I said that they flew like you take a saucer and throw it across the water. Most of the newspapers misunderstood and misquoted that, too. They said that I said that they were saucer-like. I said they flew in a saucer-like fashion. But other pilots soon told of sightings. On July 4th, the Oregon Journal received a letter from an L.G. Bernier of Richland, Washington, who saw three objects flying towards Mount Rainier about one half hour before Arnold. Bernier suggested they might have been extraterrestrial in origin. Arnold soon agreed. Uh, I don't know how best to explain that. I uh, more or less have uh, reserved an opinion as to what I think, naturally being a natural-born American. If it's not made by uh, our science or our Army Air Forces, I'm inclined to believe that it's of an extraterrestrial origin. I'll tell you this much. Uh, all the airline pilots, none of us have appreciated being laughed at. We made our report essentially to begin with because we thought that if our government didn't know what it was, it was only our duty to report it to our nation and to our Air Force out of it. I think it's something that is of concern to every person in the country. And uh, I don't think it's anything for people to get hysterical about. Now, that's just my frank opinion of it. The 
The problem with simply dismissing what Arnold saw lies in the fact that he was a credible witness. Sure, he could have been seeing things, but here was a man who was both highly trained and highly observational. Two weeks later, the most speculated UFO crash of the 20th century was reported in Roswell, New Mexico. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. On the evening of Saturday, July 5th, 1947, rancher W.W. Brazel made a trip into Corona, New Mexico. His ranch had no phone nor radio. He was unaware of the Arnold sightings. When Brazel heard stories of flying discs, he connected it with debris of a crash he'd found three weeks earlier. He took his info to the sheriff's office. The sheriff called Roswell Army Airfield, which assigned the matter to Major Jesse Marcel. Brazel took Marcel back to the site, and the two gathered up debris. Marcel took the material home on July 7th. The next morning, he took debris to his base commander, Colonel William Blanchard. Blanchard reported the finding to General Roger Ramey at Fort Worth Army Airfield. Ramey ordered a sweep of the ranch for all material connected with the crash. The material was flown to Fort Worth immediately. In the face of this, late in 1947, the Chief of Staff of the Air Forces, at that time General Carl Tui Spots, sent a directive to the Air Materiel Command located at Wright Field, Ohio. The Air Materiel Command is directed to set up a project whose purpose is to collect, collate, evaluate, and distribute to interested government agencies and contractors all pertinent information concerning sightings of phenomena in the atmosphere which can be construed to be of concern to the national security. The United States Army Air Force soon announced the capture of a flying saucer. For two days the report stood, but the Army soon walked it back. The UFO at Roswell was now a crashed weather balloon. Marcel and Ramey posed for a photo holding up what looked like aluminum foil, but astute observers noticed what appeared to be a classified memo in General Ramey's hand. The debris was sent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio for testing. Many people were unconvinced. After all, why would weather balloon debris need further lab analysis? Life magazine ran a story about the disks on July 21st. Broadcasting magazine stated that every station in the country had discussed what happened, some with an Orson Welles twist. And Radio Daily reported various attempts to use flying disks for marketing purposes. The Roswell incident soon faded from public attention, while the U.S. government began Project Saucer to investigate UFOs. The next January, Sergeant Quinton Blackwell, chief operator of the control tower at Godman Field in Fort Knox, Kentucky, spotted a strange object hovering over the south portion of the field. Four P-51 fighter planes chased the object. The leader was Captain Thomas Mantell, he was a Normandy invasion veteran. At 2.45, Mantell reported by radio. Object directly ahead and above and moving about half my speed. At 3.15, he reported again, this time 
from about 15,000 feet with no oxygen equipment. Object still ahead and above, moving at about my speed or faster, 360 miles per hour. The thing looks metallic and is of tremendous size. I'm trying to close in for a better look. At 18,000 feet, the other planes turned back. Mantell kept on. Going to 25,000. If no closer, we'll abandon search. That was his last report. It was believed he blacked out. His plane climbed to 30,000 feet before nosediving. The investigation said he was accidentally observing the planet Venus. But in April of 1949, that theory was reversed. Further investigation showed the elevation and azimuth readings of Venus, and the object as reported at specified time intervals, just didn't jibe. The object Captain Mantell chased to his tragic death is now officially marked unidentified. In all, Project Saucer investigated 375 cases. The report takes in 244 different observations. Just yesterday, we asked Major General William F. McKee, Assistant Vice Chief of Staff, United States Air Forces, to summarize the conclusions reached by Project Saucer. He said, During two years of thorough investigation, no evidence was found which would indicate that the reported flying saucers were anything but the result of natural phenomena. On the other hand, all the evidence indicated that the reports of unidentified flying objects could be accounted for under three major headings. One, misinterpretation of various conventional objects. Two, a mild form of hysteria. Three, or simple hoaxes. It has been suggested that what people actually have been seeing is the result of some of our own secret experiments, guided missiles or new types of planes or flying weapons. This is emphatically not the case. None of the three military departments nor any other agency in government is conducting experiments, classified or otherwise, with disc-shaped flying objects which could be a basis for the reported phenomena. So, how many credible witnesses could be misinterpreting various conventional objects? Apparently all of them. Or apparently not. But again, as in the first reports, there remained that same unexplained percentage of reliable, trained observers who claimed to have seen some object or objects, wheeling, whirling, zooming, slicing, or hovering in the sky. Douglas Gourley of Laguna Beach, California, is an example. Here's his story. After 14 months as an anti-aircraft observer with a searchlight battery, and also 18 months as a seacoast and anti-aircraft observer with another searchlight battery, I was driving north March 21st on 101 Highway at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon when my attention was distracted by the sunlight reflecting off some objects. I counted eight of them, proceeding directly out to sea at 2,000 feet altitude. They gave the appearance of being made out of aluminum, and I could observe a perfect circle outline of these craft. They were going, I would say, approximately 150 miles an hour. They were definitely a powered craft of some sort.
Over NBC's coast-to-coast network of independent and affiliated stations, the University of Chicago Roundtable. We present Harold C. Urey of the Department of Chemistry of the University of Chicago. Mr. Urey. Is there life on other worlds besides our own? Are there other worlds like our own Earth? What are the conditions on other planets? And what are the conditions which are necessary for life? The University of Chicago Roundtable grew out of arguments held by professors at the faculty club. In 1931, they were convinced their forum would make for good radio. WMAQ agreed. The show premiered on February 1st of that year. It began running nationally over NBC on October 15, 1933. The 30-minute time slot allowed for little grandstanding. Professors rotated with each broadcast according to their expertise. Even of the simplest form, for example, simple green plants. If people really were seeing UFOs in the sky, they had to be coming from other worlds. On December 19, 1948, the round table attempted to answer the question from a scientific point of view. I wish to introduce our speakers today. They are Professor Gerard P. Kuiper of Yerkes Observatory and McDonald Observatory in Texas, who has recently been making some very interesting studies on the character of the light, light that is reflected from the planet Mars. Professor H. Gaffron, biochemist, professor at the University of Chicago, uh, who has been studying uh, the photosynthetic process. That is the process by which light is absorbed by green plants and used as a source of energy for the production of all the compounds that are produced by plants. In this, he is making use of the isotopic tracers. Professor Harrison Brown uh, of the Institute for Nuclear Studies at the University of Chicago, who during the last few years has been investigating the isotopic composition, or the chemical composition of uh, the meteorites, these small bits of matter that come to us from somewhere outside our own Earth. Professor Kuiper, is the system of our sun and planets the only one of its kind in the universe, or are there others? Well, Yuri, we do not know this by direct observation, because if the nearest star had planets like uh, our own sun has, we would not be able to see it. We wouldn't be able to see them. However, uh, we can say this. Only recently, the... Uh, theory of the origin of the solar system consisted of the assumption that a foreign star came close to the sun, pulled out a certain amount of surface material, and that this surface material condensed into the planets. Such an event would be extremely rare, and if this theory were correct, one might assume that our own planetary system were probably unique in our whole, in our whole galaxy of stars. However, recently we have become uh, convinced that the planets probably originated by condensation from a cloud of gas surrounding the sun and the likelihood of the presence of such a cloud of gas of the total mass of the planets may be estimated to be perhaps one part in a thousand for any particular star occurring. Therefore, 
as we now see it, we would estimate planetary systems to be rather frequent in space. Well, let's see, how many stars are there? Uh, there's first, how many stars in, the, in our own galaxy? The uh, total mass of the uh, galaxy is known, and we know about how much each star weighs. Therefore, it is possible to compute the total number of stars in our galaxy, and uh, this turns out to be a one with about 11 uh, zeros after it. In other words, uh, 100 billion stars in our own galaxy. But that is not all. Outside our galaxy, we have enormous numbers of outer galaxies, sometimes called extragalactic nebulae, and the surveys which have been made at the Mount Wilson Observatory in California have extended to a distance of about 500 million light years. That means that from the boundaries of the visible space, it takes the light 500 million years to reach us. Within this enormous volume, one has approximately one billion galaxies, so that the total number of stars within the visible universe may be estimated to be a one with 20 zeros after it. And of these, 1,000 of them may have planets about them of approximately the kind that we find in our solar system. That is, one with 10, with uh, 17 zeros after it is the number of solar systems to be expected. A very, very large number indeed. I think, Yuri, that is correct. That is certainly the best estimate we can make today. And, 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 and of course, <coughs> the, uh, we see the, that this may be the number of such solar systems. How about the chemical composition? Brown, you've been working some on this question of chemical composition of matter outside of the Earth. One of the more remarkable features of our own solar system, Yuri, is the similarity in composition between our Earth and the other planets and our own Sun. Uh, most people have believed that the Earth is vastly different in composition from our Sun, but that is not true. Actually, with the exception of the very light elements, such as hydrogen and helium and carbon and nitrogen, the relative abundances of the various elements in the Earth uh, appear to be just about the same as the relative abundances of those same elements in the Sun. Similarly, it has been found that uh, the composition of meteorites is uh, quite close to the gross composition of our Earth and to some of the other planets, such as Mars and uh, Venus, uh, uh, at, at least with respect to these heavy elements. Uh, by heavy elements, I mean uh, iron and silicon and magnesium and calcium, elements such as that. Now, one can go to the uh, uh, larger planets, uh, there, they are so large that they retain large quantities of hydrogen and helium, these very light substances. But even there, the uh, gross composition, including the light elements this time, appears to be just about the same as the composition of those elements in the sun. Uh, I believe, Kuiper, is it not true that the uh, uh, other stars in our own galaxy and in the uh, extra uh, galactic nebulae uh, have uh, compositions which are quite close to our own sun, too. Uh, yes, Brian, I think that is one of the most interesting results of astronomy, that the composition of one star compared to another star is so remarkably similar. There may be differences, perhaps, of a factor two in certain abundance ratios, but by and large, we can say that the stars have practically the same composition as the sun, <clears throat> and if we observe the spectra of the distant galaxies, 
we get again a spectrum very similar to the spectrum of the galaxy as a whole. In other words, within the whole visible universe, we must assume that the same elements of the periodic table occur and in approximately the same ratios as they do here. And is it not true that uh, these stars uh, and our own sun are composed largely of uh, these lighter substances like hydrogen and helium and oxygen and so forth? Yes, they are the most abundant of the elements. That's correct. Well, now, there may be many places then like the Earth. Uh, what are the other factors? What are the factors that are necessary for a planet to be suitable for life? What size, what temperature, what other things? Gaffin, could you, as a biochemist, tell us... Uh, something about this. Well, in contrast to the overall similarity of matter in the universe, the conditions under which life appears on Earth seem rather restricted. For instance, the temperature uh, range is rather small. It's uh, between the uh, boiling point of water on the one end and a few degrees below the freezing of water where life really can thrive. And many organisms cannot stand more than about 120 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Some simpler plant, plants can live in hot springs, have been found living at 160 degrees Fahrenheit or even above. On the other hand, coal does not destroy plants or simple life very easily. And we have, of course, in the form of seeds and spores of bacteria, forms which can last for many, many years. It uh, come to active life again. There were no scripts, but Roundtable was the first show of its kind to be issued in a weekly magazine. It contained a transcript of the previous program, biographies of the participants, listener feedback, suggested topical reading, and a schedule of coming broadcasts. The conditions are suitable for life part of the time. The University of Chicago Roundtable would air until June 12, 1955. It finally went off the air when NBC launched Monitor. and wait for a better time to uh, become active again. Oh yes, you could have a living season, so to speak, which would be much shorter than on the Earth, but the low temperatures as such would not speak against it. But another restriction is the presence of water. And most living things contain 80 to 90% water, and in the, if desiccated, they die, except again, if adapted to survive in the uh, dry state. And such resting organisms can continue act to be, come to active life again when moist. Otherwise, they would uh, stay dormant for many years. Mary, no! God, let's let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course. The sound is coming from the basement. It's all right. I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes. Get away. Get away. George, get away. no. Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. By mid-March of this year, the flood of flying saucer sightings had hit a new peak. 
Into many of these reports there now crept a new and somewhat eerie tone. The feeling that these flying saucers were something out of this world, possibly interplanetary aircraft, sent from some distant celestial sphere to investigate what manner of life managed to exist here on Earth. Until March of 1950, most reported UFO observations were seen from a great distance away. On March 16th, a physician and pilot, Dr. Craig Hunter of Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, saw one up close. We're going north on Route 153 from Clearfield, Pennsylvania towards Penfield, Pennsylvania. And about nine miles out of Clearfield, and I begin to hear a hissling, whistling sort of a sound, something that I had completely strange to me and then I looked up into the sky and coming from a southeasterly direction to a northwesterly direction was this flying disc or for the want of a better name a flying saucer it was say around uh, 150 feet around in circumference and there was three distinct parts of it there was an inner circle a metal circle which rotated around this inner circle and an outside circle which about one-third of the area on each side was covered with openings somewhat similar to an airliner opening. Now, this inner circle rotated anticlockwise very slowly, and it went over me practically right over my head, and I would say it was traveling at a speed approximately 60 to 70 miles per hour. I would say that the thing was approximately 250 to 300 feet above me, not over 400 feet. It was of a dirty aluminum color, and I got a tendency to indicate the southern edge as sloping up, which would indicate to me that it was about 15 to 20 feet thick at the center. It would give you the idea that it was a rocket type of combustion, rather. It didn't give you the indication of a make and break, like a, a motor or anything like that. It was a continuous whistling sound. The conditions were very, very fine for observing it. I mean that the, it was just as clear as a bell, and I could distinctly see each and every detail in, as to the outline of it. That same month, the Mutual Broadcasting System launched a series called 2000 Plus, considered the first adult science fiction show in radio history. A month later, NBC launched their own. Produced from Radio City in New York, it would be called Dimension X, and debut on Saturday, April 8th at 8 p.m. Whether it was John's other wife, or Merton Marge, or Easy Aces, or uh, Big Sister, and I did them all, I don't think there was one that I did not do, I also did things like being the announcer for the New York Philharmonic for a couple of years, for being a stooge in a Spanish-speaking or a, a dialect Spanish-speaking stooge on one of the big shows, for being the narrator on an Archibald McLeish series about, it was called, I think, The American Story, doing all kinds of things, and they, every one of them, aside from the financial aspects of them, FBI and Peace and War, uh, Gangbusters, my gosh, Grand Central Station, all of those. I wrote some of them, too. The man you're listening to is Arnold Moss, an accomplished New York actor. By 1950, he was all over the radio dial. 
Moss was also no stranger to playing multiple parts in a single broadcast. There was another thing that was very important about it until after the union came in and said you could only do so much. We all doubled like crazy on gangbusters, for example. We would play six and seven parts in a half-hour show, and this called on a facility of technique, not necessarily good, of inventing voices, of inventing characterizations with no rehearsal. You were given the script and you rehearsed for an hour and there you were on the air. And that, from an actor's point of view, kept you very much on your toes. And that, that was a wonderful thing. I remember I had two running parts. I think it was Big Sister and the Goldbergs. And one was at CBS, one was at NBC. And I had four minutes to get from 52nd Street in Madison over to what is now Radio City. And you'd have elevator men waiting for you and you'd have cabs waiting for you and you hoped that it wouldn't snow or rain and you'd get in there out of breath and gulp and take a deep breath and go from Reed Bannister to whatever you were playing on the Goldbergs. We were very busy people, this hardcore of 25 or 30 of us. Once in an interview like this, I was asked the greatest number of shows I'd ever done in a single week and I had looked it up in advance and believe it or not, and we were all doing this kind of thing. There was one period of seven days in which I was on the air in 41 different shows. That's, That's incredible. It's incredible, but I've got the records. <laughs> 41 different shows in seven days. On May 6, 1950, Moss starred in the episode called Knock. Adventures in time and space, told in future tense. Dimension X, 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 X. Can you predict the future? Can you tell what will happen in a hundred years? Or in ten? Or in the next minute? Can you look beyond the known dimensions of time and space into the unknown, Dimension X? Tonight we have a strange story to tell, a sweet, blood-curdling little story that is really only two sentences long. The last man on Earth sat alone in a room. There was a knock on the door. Think it over. Suppose you were the last man alive on Earth. In the universe, for that matter. The last man sitting alone in a room. And suddenly, there was a knock on the door. What knocked on the door? You wonder, don't you? Your mind, faced with the unknown, supplies something vaguely horrible. But it isn't horrible, really. You'll see. last man on earth sat alone in a room. There was a knock on the door. Hmm? What, what? Oh, what's that? Good morning, man. What? What? Who are you? You have regained consciousness. Well, who are you? I am Azan. Maybe if I close my eyes, it'll go away. I will not go away, man. No, no, I... I... Yes, I am awake. Who? What are you? I am Azan. 
What's that? Azan is intelligent life. Why do... What happened? Where are you from? From planet seven in the third galaxy in the fourth quadrant. Where? It is not necessary to repeat information which is correct in the original statement. Planet seven? You mean I'm not on Earth? You are still on your planet. Well, then what are you doing here? The Zans have annexed your world. You mean you've conquered Earth? Yes, that is correct. We will now prepare your planet for habitation by the Zan. Well, how about the people? There is no longer any use for large numbers of lower life forms. Therefore, we have dispensed with them. Dispensed with... You mean you've... When did all this happen? Two days ago. You have been unconscious until now. You really mean I'm the last man on Earth? That is correct. Identify yourself now. Uh, what? Kindly provide data as to your position in the elementary social order of your planet. Oh, oh, uh... Well, I, I, I'm Walter Phelan, associate professor of anthropology at Nathan University. H how is it you speak English? We have deciphered your written and recorded records. It is not difficult to reconstruct your language, very type of auditory communication. Oh. Is there anything you want to complete your natural habitat? You mean I'm a prisoner? That is correct. What will you want further in your room? Well, do I have to stay here? Yes. The rest of my life? Forever. Well, then you better bring in my books. Uh, uh, I got to call you something. Do you, do you mind if I call you uh, George? It is immaterial. All right, then, George. You know, I, I can't really believe this. That is a characteristic of low-life form. I'm trying to take this in without going off balance completely. I will be back, Associate Professor of Anthropology. It's all right, George. Just call me Walter. Very well, Walter. I will be back with your books. All right, George. I'll be seeing you around. You will not be around, Walter. You will be here. <laughs> Yes, the last man on Earth sat alone in a room, a rather peculiar room. he just noticed how peculiar it was, and he'd been studying out the reason for its peculiarity. His conclusion didn't horrify him, but it annoyed him. There was a knock on the door. Come in. Oh, hello, George. Hello, Walter. What can I do for you? Point one, you will please henceforth sit with your chair pointed the other way. I thought so. That plain wall is different from the other sides, isn't it? That is correct. It is transparent. That's what I thought. I'm in a zoo. Right? That is correct. I knew it. And if I persist in sitting with my back to it, what then? You'll kill me, I ask, hopefully? No, we will not kill you. That's too bad. George? Face the bars and perform for the people. I, I mean for the Zans. How many other animals do you have here in the zoo, George? 216. A male and female each of 108 kinds. Male and female of... of all the animals? There is a female of your species among the collection. Anyone I know? Never mind. It doesn't matter anyway. Well, George, you started out with point one. I suppose there's a point two kicking around somewhere. What is it? Something we do not understand. Two of the other animals sleep and do not wake. They are cold. What is wrong with them, Walter? Well, they must be dead. Dead? That means stopped. But nothing stopped them. Each was alone. Sure, they, 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 they just died. But I have told you they were alone. Nothing stopped them. 
George, do you mean to tell me that you don't know what natural death is? Death is when a being is killed, stopped from living. Maybe these animals just died of old age. Old age? I do not understand. George, how old are you? Your planet went around the sun about 7,000 times since I was born. 7,000 years? Yes, I'm still young. Now look, George, you've got something to learn about this planet you've hijacked. Here on Earth, we've, we've got somebody that's a stranger where you come from. Down here, our people and animals live until the Grim Reaper stops them. This uh, Grim Reaper stopped the two animals? That's right. He will stop more? Oh, he gets us all, George. This is a new factor we have not considered. But you can consider it. Because when the Grim Reaper gets through, there won't be very much left of your zoo. You mean he will stop more animals soon? Well, with your lifespan, it won't seem like a minute and we'll all be gone. Oh, it looks like you made a mistake, George. I don't think there's very much you can do about it. That is not correct. The Zahn is a logical being. We will take action. For it's time, Dimension X was a wonder. Two and sometimes three sound men worked each show. We will be there shortly. It was produced in a huge two-story studio, giving the crew the ability to obtain tremendous echo effects. Blended in more futuristic musical scores, composed by Albert Berman, and played on the organ. Host narrator Norman Rose was the perfect voice, combining an authoritative resonance with a touch of dark irony. Arnold Moss was right at home in these futuristic dramas. George didn't explain. George he was flanked by Joan Alexander and Louis Van Rooten. I don't know that it's ever been more or less mellifluous because I've never been aware of the quality of my voice. My whole theory is, and I think you would both agree with me, that as soon as an actor or announcer becomes aware of the mellifluousness of his voice, he better go out and get himself another job, because he's not paying attention to what he's saying, but rather how it sounds. Yes, I saw their spaceship. It's as big as a mountain. They're moving in on us. They cleaned off the earth with some kind of vibration that destroys all sorts of animal life. They killed everybody. Oh, no. I was afraid. Well, the cheerful note is that you and I and 200-odd other animals were picked up beforehand as specimens for the zoo. You know that this is a zoo, don't you? Yes. I suspected it. But I don't remember anything about being captured. I just woke up here. Well, they solved a lot of problems for us. Housing shortages. Wars. I don't suppose the human race... You and I, that is, have to worry about anything now. It's awful. Only they made one mistake. They overestimated us. I don't understand. They thought we were immortal. That we were what? Immortal, like they are. Oh, they can, they can be killed. But the Zans don't know what natural death is. They didn't know anyway until they lost two of us yesterday. You mean there are more than two of us? No, no, no more of our species. The, the, these were merely brother animals. A rabbit and a canary. And by the Zahn's way of figuring time, the rest of us are only good for a few minutes apiece anyway. That's a joke on them. They figured they had permanent specimens here in their zoo. But didn't they know that we'd all die eventually? No, I don't think so. See, George told me he was 7,000 years old and he's supposed to be young. When they learned how quickly we die, well, they were probably shocked to the core. 
If they have cause. How can you talk that way about it? Academic detachment, I learned it at faculty tees. At any rate, they've decided to reorganize their zoo two by two. Oh. Sure, they figure we'll last longer collectively, if not individually. But if they think... That is, if you think, for one minute... No, no, don't, don't, don't worry. I don't. But are they going to keep us locked up together in this one little room? I'm afraid so. It's horrible. I agree with you perfectly, my dear. But all personal considerations aside, the least favor we can do the human race is to let it end with us. I don't see much point in continuing it just for an exhibition in a zoo. How can you just sit here and and lecture? Have it, have it. But we've got to do something. Why? I don't know. It, it just seems we owe it to the human race to do something. You got a suggestion? There must be some way. They can be killed, you said. I think that anything that would kill one of us would kill one of them. You see, I, 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 I figured it out, I think. George cut his... I suppose you'd call it his hand when he brought in my books. It started to bleed, red blood, but I could see the cut closing just as he stood there. And by the time he left, it was healed. I don't understand. Don't you see, whatever factor there is in man that makes him grow old is missing in the Zahn. They just go on and on and on until... Well, until they're stopped. Yes. But suppose we killed one. There must be some way. Well, but what would be the use? They wouldn't even punish us. They'd just give us our food through a trap door and put a sign out saying, Beware of the man. Dangerous. I don't think they'd have to bother in your case. <laughs> I don't see anything funny. I'm sorry. Just reminds me of Martha. Martha? My wife. She died two years ago. I'm sorry. No. Not at all. Oh, that'll be George with my books. Come in. Hello. George? Hello, Walter. Point one, I have brought your books. Point one? Well, what else is on your mind? Point two, another creature sleeps and will not wake. A small feathered one called a duck. It happens, George. I warned you. Old man, death, the grim reaper. I told you all about him. Walter, the Council of Zahn has met. It has been decided logically that the only intelligent life to escape the vibration is you. Therefore, the logical conclusion is... You are stopping these animals by some means unknown to us. George, you're off your trolley. You will tell me now how this is done. You boys afraid you're going to lose the whole zoo? It is necessary to save the remaining specimens as long as possible. If we do not get information, we may be forced to dispense with your species entirely. Now, wait a minute. This means you, Walter, and the female. Now, wait a minute, George. Don't go off half-cocked. Let me take a look at these animals that won't wake up. I will take you there now. Go first, Walter. After you, my dear George. This is the weasel. You should have got him in the winter, George. The fur's worth more then. Then it's an ermine. This is the reptile cage. Here are the ducks. This is the male. The female has been stopped. <laughs> Lucky girl. What's the matter, fellow? You lonely down there? Walter, you will tell me how you stopped the female duck. You got me, George. I didn't do it. Maybe she died of the Dutch elm blight. Walter, you are not being logical. 
We have concluded you are stopping these animals. Tell us how it is done. I told you, George, I haven't the foggiest notion. Very well. We will have to take further action. Well, what are you going to do, George? We have methods of action you will know soon. We will go back now to your room. What happened, Mr. Phelan? You call me Walter. After all, George does, and we have more in common. Oh, please, what happened? Just a duck, a dead duck. George thinks I killed her by remote control. He thinks I'm holding out on him. Good. What? Well, at least we can get back at them. At least we can do something to them. Well, why? After all, George isn't a bad fellow, if you like an ant mentality. How can you say that? They've wiped out the whole human race. They've murdered everybody. I suppose they have, but we can't change that now, so why think about it? Well, we can't just sit here and do nothing. I fail to see how we can do anything else. Oh, of all the men in the world they had to pick, don't you want to fight back? Don't you want to keep on fighting until the end? It hadn't occurred to me. But we've got to, Walter. Why? Well, I... I, I... I can't really explain, but... Walter, if there was any good in man at all, it was that he kept on struggling against nature and in the end even against himself. The show was produced live for the first 13 weeks and transcribed thereafter. It ran against Gene Autry on CBS. To help promote it, the NBC press department sent out their radio editor's flying saucer mail service. It was a promotional piece made up of a white saucer-shaped cardboard lettered in red and white and attached to a blue square. It wasn't long before Wheaties grabbed the series with their big parade in the summer of 1950. They began sponsorship on July 7th. But aside from Friday, Saturday night was radio's lowest-rated evening. NBC won three of the four time slots between 8.30 and 10, but they were all comedies. While Dimension X was well-produced, it was an outlier sandwiched between the Joe DiMaggio show and Truth or Consequences. Wheaties ended their big parade in August, and NBC began to bump Dimension X around its schedule. It was picked up and dropped without announcement, and finally went off the air for good on September 29, 1951. I believe there were something like 14 female roles in this half-hour dramatization, and Lorene played all of them, <laughs> which was it? not an economy move on the part of the network. <laughs> it was simply to illustrate her great versatility. And uh, she played all the women, and uh, it, was a, it was a story uh, like the, the Faust story laid in uh, Germany of many years ago. In the spring of 1950, network radio revenue was falling for the first time since 1933. There were now over 2,600 AM and FM stations vying for advertising dollars. The U.S. spent the first 10 months of 1949 in a recession, while TV was becoming a serious threat to both primetime network radio and Hollywood films. Hollywood had another worry this week. Brows were furrowed as tycoons wondered what to do about that lusty infant of show business called television. Let's begin this report with a comment from a man who's known for producing good films. On the NBC quiz, Who Said That? Reporter Robert Trout put the $64 question to producer Samuel Goldwyn. You think television and Hollywood will be able to work together or what will happen? I'm positive of it. You think they will? 
Absolutely. It won't be as much of a fight to destroy one or the other as some people say. We know how in Hollywood. Television needs it. No question about Hollywood's technical know-how, but in the salty language of Jimmy Durante, how are they going to get into the act? To make a first-hand check, your editor got aboard American Airlines' inaugural flight of their DC-6 coach to Hollywood and talked with industry leaders. Off the record, they seem anxious to make films for television, but they're worried about a man named The Exhibitor. He's the theater owner. TV is his competitor. If major studios alienate him, they lose a main source of revenue. That's their dilemma. But some major producers are already making TV films. Listen to this comment. This is Hal Roach from Hollywood. Television's apparently taking some of the cream from the motion picture business. First, the attitude of the motion picture producer is to do nothing. Second, if they will, the motion picture business could completely dominate the television broadcasting. If you can't lick them, join them. It's the only logical solution. Over 100 TV stations were on the air, and radio's top 50 program ratings were down 30% in just two years since the record high of 1947-48. Only the Lux Radio Theater and Jack Benny had ratings higher than 20. Meanwhile, the TV networks reported a combined income of more than $29 million. The world was changing too. The U.S. was on the brink of war with Korea. During the week of March 26th, Wisconsin's junior senator, Joseph McCarthy, named five U.S. State Department employees as potential communists. The senator's actions placed him firmly in the crosshairs of Edward R. Murrow. Two-time Republican presidential nominee Thomas Dewey was relegated to a voice of reason. Before any Republican rejoices at the possible shipwreck of the foreign policy of the Democratic administration, he should remember that we are all in the same boat. At the same time, the Democrats should remember that the administration invited this trouble by allowing bipartisan cooperation to deteriorate, and they should not forget that it was their own party that had to clean out a large collection of its own undesirables. The world situation is desperate enough to call for largeness of spirit and genuine cooperation between both parties in foreign affairs, however much they may contest on domestic issues. It would be four years before McCarthyism came to an end, while Cold War fears continued to escalate. Dateline, Moscow, 11.30 New York time, Tuesday morning. The Soviet communique broke the news. An American plane of the B-29 type, said Vyshinsky, had flown 13 miles into Latvia, fired on a Russian fighter, and been fired on in return. But a check of U.S. air commands in Europe revealed no B-29 had flown in the Baltic area. Missing was a four-engined American Navy privateer with ten men aboard. The ship had been unarmed, its only weapon a pistol worn by the pilot. From Castorf Airfield near Copenhagen, a score of planes set out to search Baltic waters for a trace of this Navy ship. That's a C-54 roaring into the dawn, recorded on the scene in Denmark. Nearby, in an improvised ready room, other American crews were briefed for the search. This is how it actually happened at Castorp Field. Okay, fellas, you're going out to Area B. Your radio frequencies and facilities remain the same. You want that report uh, then during the hour, is that right? Well, that's right, on the hour and sooner if you cite any questionable objects that you feel we ought to look at. But how's okay. the weather out there right now? Weather is good. You'll have uh, 1,000 to 1,500 feet in three to six miles. 
We'd like for you to get airborne as soon as you can and uh, stay out as long as you possibly can. These men have scoured 60,000 square miles of the Baltic without announcement of success in the search. Pravda now concedes it was our Navy plane that was fired on, and the Moscow newspaper boasts that, quote, the impudent fellows got a proper lesson, unquote. That spring, with both science fiction and UFOs in vogue, multiple shows focused on flying saucers within individual episode plot lines. On March 26, 1950, the Red Skelton Show presented flying saucers. One of the co-stars was famed radio character actress Lorene Tuttle. Well, what yeah, about the Red Skelton Show? Now, you played Junior's... When Mummy. Red was Junior, played Junior's mother. Mummy. Uh -huh. Mummy, always right. called not, Junior's not Mummy. Not Mamaw. Mamaw was no. Verna Felton. Yes, right. And you were Junior's Mummy. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I played Daisy June, his girlfriend. Uh -huh. That was Clem Cadiddlehopper's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And I played Mrs. Willie Lump Lump. He was the drunk. I played a lot of other parts on the show. I have some of those tapes, and they're fun to listen to. Were oh, the... I really think Red Skelton should get out a lot of his tapes and play them again, because I really think his show was always better on radio than it ever was on TV. Well, that's the old story funnier. of... To me, uh, it was funnier. ...story of the imagination again. Absolutely. See, I understand that he put on a after show for the studio audience when the regular radio broadcast Yes, he broadcast did, at least done. an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. He got steamed up, you know, and the half-hour show didn't really satisfy him. So he kept the audience there afterwards. When we, when we were on Fridays, we would have a preview on Thursday night, and he would go on and on and on and on. We'd have to stay there because we'd have to wait till this after-show was over before we could listen to the record. And oh, we would huh. listen to the record to see how things went. And then we came back the next day and did the live show, always live. I don't think I ever went on that we weren't live. Yeah. Did you have to do two shows then, didn't you, for the West Coast and the East Coast? No, in that case, no, because it was taken off on transcription and replayed. Many times we would do a 5 o'clock show, mm -hmm. and that would be taken off on transcription and played later. But in the old days, we did do two shows. Mm -hmm. We would have an afternoon show, a 5 o'clock show, or a 5.30 show, and then come back and do it again at 8.30. Mm -hmm. But those were a lot of audience shows, too. We would wear street clothes in the afternoon and come back and wear evening clothes. Oh, you really? Oh, would yes, it was a very glamorous two business. Two uh -huh. different audiences. Mm -hmm. huh? Over at the Huntington Hartford, when I go backstage there, I think of the many radio shows we used to do there. The Lux Radio Show went mm -hmm. on there, and lots of radio shows went on because they were audience shows. That's why I felt that radio was not just a microphone working kind mm -hmm. of show; it was audience participation. And okay, Red. Oh. <clears throat> Voice day, damn. <laughs> well, we're off to a good start, boy. <laughs> Voice day blues, worry no more. Get new tide at your nearest store. Razzmatazz and T I <laughs> From Hollywood, Procter and Gamble's Tide, the largest selling wash day product in America, proudly presents the Red Skelton program. With Red Skelton, David Rose and his orchestra, singing stars of Four Nights, Lorene Tuttle, Pat McGee, and Dick Ryan, Martha Wentworth, and John Holbrook will be me, Rod O'Connor. These are days of scientific development. So here is Procter & Gamble's Flying Risk and Metro-Golden-Mayer's H-Bum, Red Skelton. <laughs> H. 
H-bum, huh? H-bum, huh? <laughs> you know, introductions like that are nice. Too bad you won't be here next week to make another one like that. Oh, I was only kidding. Yeah. You know, you're awful touchy and jumpy lately. Like the other day when you saw that flying saucer. Oh, yeah. Hey, did you folks hear what happened? Junior's mother got him one of those Buck Rogers outfits, you see. Well, this is what happened. This is what happened. <laughs> Don't wash too hard. Don't wash too hard. Oh, you're all washed. Yes. Now get into bed and take your nap. Okay, dictator. <laughs> That's enough. Hmm? Now get into your crib. Yeah, okay. You know, I'm getting to be a big boy. I can get in my crib all by myself. Look. <laughs> That's a good boy. Yeah. Now sleep tight. Hmm? Sleep tight. I will. Me pajama shrunk. <laughs> He's gone, he's gone. I'm going to put on me Buck Rogers outfit and fly me kite and have some fun, boy. Get out of me clip here. First, I got to make a telephone call. I got to make a telephone call. See if the coast is clear. Nope, nobody here. So she won't hear me coming down the stairs. I'll slide down the banister. <laughs> boy, a couple of more trips like that, I'm going to need a retread. <laughs> First, I'll phone Red Skelton's houseboy to scare him. He worries so, though. He always worries so. Yeah, Skelton residence. Say, you remember talking about the flying saucers? Yeah. Yeah, well, they're back. Goodbye. One just landed. <laughs> now, who could that have been? Good heavens, a flying saucer. Oh, Mr. Skelton. Mr. Skelton. Oh, oh Mr. Skelton. In here. Oh, oh, you're awake. Yeah. Ah, you're up early this morning. Yeah, that's right, Fred. I made up my mind last week that they're not going to catch me staying in bed late anymore. Is lunch ready? <laughs> <laughs> well, sleeping late's a bad habit, Mr. Oh, yes, 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 indeed. I had an uncle once who slept so much, the only clothes he wore were his pajamas. Really? Yeah, why would you believe it? We had to wake him up so as he wouldn't miss his own funeral. Good for him. Yes. You can bury that joke with him. <laughs> <laughs> Here's really my answer. This is a pip. I have to say that last line again. Now, well, get this. We had to wake him up so he wouldn't miss his own funeral. Dead tired, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor boy. Thinks he's a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to miss you around here, boy. <laughs> hey, what's wrong with you? You look worried. Is your adrenaline wearing off? No, no. A few nights ago, right after I turned out the lights and crawled into bed, yeah. guess what happened? It got dark? No. no. <laughs> I happened to glance out the window and guess what I saw in the sky? What? A shiny silver saucer flying around the moon. You sure it wasn't the termites in your glasses? <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. It was a flying disc mm. about eight inches across and 30,000 six eights feet up in the air. Oh, now, wait a yes, minute. Yes, it was. It was. And streaming behind the saucer was a blue flame tinged with yellow and the little man in the disc was wearing a bow tie with the same colors. You didn't have to see a wart on his nose, did you? <laughs> no, no, but he had two Adam's apples. Well, that's in case he gets thirsty, he can make cider out of one of them. Say, <laughs> <laughs> so you've been reading too many of those science fiction stories, you know. It could have been a pedestrian, you know. They're knocking them pretty high this season. Oh, no, no, it was a flying saucer from Mars. Well, wait a minute, they want to laugh, but we're rushing. <laughs> <laughs> they came all the way from Pomona to hear this. <laughs> It was a flying saucer from Mars. Oh. I ought to know. I saw the license plates. How could you see the license plates? You're so nearsighted and beersighted, I might add. <laughs> so nearsighted that you use magnifying glasses to see your glasses. <laughs> That's a brilliant one. <laughs> 
I've been looking out this window for five minutes and I haven't seen... <laughs> hey, Fred, what do them things look like? Is that one? Yeah, let me take a look. Where? Well, Bully Field, Mr. Skelton, you've spotted one. Really? Sure. Well, maybe I better uh, call the police here. I'll, I'll call them and report this right away. Hello? Keep, City wait, Jail. I have another line. <laughs> Keep your eye on it. It's probably Bob Hope flying to Portland. <laughs> yes, Hello? Ma'am. Hello? City Jail. Yeah, I want to report a flying saucer. Just a moment, please. please. I'll connect you with the flying saucer department. <laughs> hey, Sam! Here's a live one for you. Ah, <laughs> uh, hang up. Please, uh, please. Uh, that's the please department. Go answer the door there, will you? Why, I'm not Snoopy. You're not going to be an employee either if you don't go answer the door. <laughs> Good heavens, it's one of them flying saucers. Let's all drag our heels a little, boys. What do you say? What do you mean it's a flying saucer? It's me, Fred. Yeah, he's not a saucer. He looks more like a platter of gristle. <laughs> well, that's very funny, Dimples. Oh, yeah, Dimples. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, what are you doing with that telescope? Oh, I'm going fishing. <laughs> what do you think I'm doing with it? I'm looking up in the air at flying saucers. I saw one. Oh, come on. Now, you're just like everybody else. You've been watching television too much. Your eyes are muscle-bound. Yeah. <laughs> hey, did you have your television set on last night? Yeah. How did it fit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we did see flying saucers, didn't we, Fred? Yes, sir. We both saw it. Yeah. It made me so nervous, I chewed my fingernails down to half-mast. Mm-hmm. There must be some kind of diagram to go with jokes like these (laughs) Trouble with you, O'Connor You're not keeping up with the times Why, in a short time We might be doing our broadcast from Mars Oh, Procter and Gamble won't kick us that far, will they? (laughs) No, in fact, they've been heading me the other direction Ah, you and your flying saucer All right, come over to the window (laughs) Take a look in the sky through my telescope Go ahead Okay, I'm looking. Oh, do you see it? It's really something. Red, why didn't you tell me about this before? Oh, Connor, stop pointing that telescope at that window across the street. <laughs> Here, let me take a look. <laughs> my, my, what a funny... You see, now here's... <laughs> Unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, the censor got this joke and you won't hear it tonight. <laughs> a nice thing to get off the air with. Never get us back on, but it would get us off. Hey, hey. Look over there on that roof. Yeah? It's the Four Knights. Yeah? They must be looking for flying saucers, too. No, they're just rehearsing. And me being a lip reader, I would say they were singing Wilhelmina. Wilhelmina, she's the cutest little girl in Copenhagen. Skelton was airing over CBS Sunday nights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. His March rating was 15.6, but his season number was 13.5. It was 14th overall, but down seven points from two years prior. So you were really all over radio, Oh, I should you? say I was. I used to do all kinds of voices, too. I still can. I can go down to McGregor and sometimes do a little little tiny girl. Can you, you know? give us a little, can you give us a little girl? Let me see. On a, a show over at CBS Television City, I had to play a doll not too long ago. Let's see if I can get that voice again. Somebody pushed the you know, little string on the doll, and I had to, I had to run upstairs and uh, put my face into the microphone and 
and the bees and the doll while they were working the doll on the, on the downstairs. Nobody knew the difference. Nobody knew I was doing it. See, Howard Duff was right. He said, you have to talk to Loreen Tuttle because she's a doll. Oh, how sweet. <laughs> oh. You see, I always felt that we had to work with an all-physical person. We always worked from the full person because that's the only honest way to do it. You have, you have to have a person who lives and breathes and walks and is alive rather than just turning on a voice. Because you could conjure up, if you really had, through imagination, anything that you wanted to be. That's why I loved it, too. Because I could play opposite Jimmy Stewart, or Frederick March, or Cary Grant, or Gary Cooper, or Leslie Howard. And on the air, I could be the most glamorous, gorgeous, tall, black-haired female you've ever seen in your life. Whatever I wish to be, I could be with my voice. That was the thrilling part to me. Now, with Tide, you can get your wash sparkling clean without rinsing. That's right. With Procter & Gamble's Tide, you don't have to rinse. Here's why. Tide gets the dirt out of clothes and keeps it suspended in the sudsy water. So when you wring or spin dry your clothes, the dirt goes out along with the wash water. Your clothes come out clean, white, fresh. They dry soft and fluffy, iron easily, smell sweet and clean. Yes, I said clean. You know how clean Tide has always washed your clothes with rinsing, cleaner than any other washing product you can buy. Now, we want you to try that same wonderful Tide without rinsing and compare the results. Why, it's unbelievable how bright, fresh, and clean your clothes will be. And think of the time and work you save. So try it. Remember, the Tide that's on your dealer's shelf right now in the same familiar package will wash clothes dazzling clean without rinsing. Tide in, dirt out, T-I-D-E, Tide. Hey, do you see any flying saucers in the sky, Rod? Hey, maybe it's one of them uh, uh, rocket ships from Mars. Maybe they're going to blow up the Earth, huh? Red, you mean this is it? I think so, boy. Well, at least we're together for our last few moments. So long, old pal. So long. Oh, let's not get sickening about this. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, Barrel Boy, they'd need an awful big bomb to blow you up. <laughs> we're going to tear you down and put up a new studio, I think, you know? <laughs> how about a game of canasta while we're waiting? Hey, probably the guy coming to turn off the lights. Since I heard about that H bar, I haven't paid any bills. <laughs> Yeah? I'm a reporter from the California Daily Smog. Oh? <laughs> it was formerly the California Sun. Oh, yes, I remember. You used to come out... <laughs> I remember. You used to come out once a month. Yes. Are you Red Skelton? Well, I've never had anybody run up and say, you're Red Skelton, but if I'm not, I have an awful lot of fun with his money. <laughs> Me and little old Harry. Yeah, I'm Red Skelton, co-starred with Fred Astaire in the new Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer musical, Three Little Words, which I have up for the Academy Award for next year. <clears throat> Look, I heard through the grapevine... You listen to grapes? ...that you reported seeing a flying saucer. Yeah, is there anything you'd like to know? Yes, there is. Where do you buy your bottled stuff? Uh... <laughs> you don't think I saw them saucers? You guys think I'm nuts, huh? Oh, now, come on, cool off, Red. We don't think you're nuts. Oh. Just lie down on the couch now and tell us all about it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, wise guy, you come outside and I'll prove to you that there's some flying saucers around here. Now. Okay, where's your saucer? There, there it is. See? Look, look up there. Look. Cut off my flab and call me skinny. <laughs> <laughs> there is a flying saucer up there. Yeah. 
It looks like it's going to land. Yeah, it's coming down on the next street. Come on, let's capture it. Come on. Oh, too bad we weren't on horses. They'd have thought this was the Hopalong Cassidy show. <laughs> well, Red, we've run two blocks and we can't find where that flying disc has landed yet. Yeah, we'd better give up. Well, it's bound to be around here someplace. I wonder what happened to it. The saucer? No, the plot of this script. <laughs> <laughs> Look, let's split up. Let's go up through this alley here. Come on, this way, Rod. Okay, come on. Yeah, boy, what a ritzy neighborhood. Look, the cans have been cleaned and pressed before they throw them out. How do you like that? Uh-oh. What? Look who's shuffling down the alley. Polly the Panhandle. Yeah, old Miss... Catastrophe of 196. <laughs> Get a little of that fur coat she's wearing. <laughs> it looks like she wanted it a skunk fight. <laughs> Howdy, gents. Howdy, gents. I see we patronize the same trash can. Hey, Polly. <laughs> what are you doing up this alley here? Oh, I sneaked up here to cop a smoke. Do you fellas mind if I smoke? No, of course not. Well, then offer me a cigarette. <laughs> hey, why are you always bumming cigarettes? Well, that's because people are always stepping on their cigarette butts when they drop them, and I hate smoking them flat. <laughs> I gotta have my smoke, youngster. Oh. If you don't offer me one, I'll just have to go back to inhaling incinerators. <laughs> Happen to have a bobby pin on you, would you? No. I just washed my mustache and I can't do a thing with it. <laughs> See, I like the way your mustache hangs over your mouth. It saves lipstick and hides that purple. Say, <laughs> say did you know today's my birthday? Oh, really? Yeah, it's hard to realize that I'm pushing 35. <laughs> Don't look now, but you're pushing in the wrong direction. On March 29th, RCA made their first color television demonstration. Their system would eventually be accepted by the FCC and would become the standard for broadcasting. The next fall, Skelton took his show into TV, where it would air until 1971. You did, I don't know how many shows the Red Skelton show was on, how many, but... 20 consecutive years. You own the rights to all of those tapes, and yes. you made the statement that you may ask for them to be burned upon your demise. No, no. Good. No, I'll tell you what that was all about. I play a lot of colleges. Right. And the college students, they ask all the time, when are we going to see your reruns? Oh, see? yeah. So this one day I go in, and uh, they were talking about art. I go into colleges. I go in residence for three days. Each day I give talks with questions and answers. First day is political science, propaganda, and communications. Second day is religions. Third day is theatrical arts. So these students ask, they says, did you read about that Indian out in Arizona that burned all of his paintings? because they were going to charge whatever he char uh, sold the last painting for. In case he died, that would be paid to the government. So he burned all of those paintings. So then someone says, what are you going to do when, if you don't release your paintings? I said, I'll do what the Indian did. See? That's how this started. Oh. Nothing was said. And about a year later, someone says, uh, I understand that you're going to burn your, your reruns. reruns. So I said, uh-oh, I've created an interest now. They're interested. You know. I got their attention. Huh? I, I've got their attention. I says, yeah, yeah, that's what I'll do. If they don't release them before I die, they say, how do you know when you're going to die? I said, I'll put it in my will.
What a fool I was To think that you could love me And this was really the beginning of the end for radio as we knew it, John. Did you recognize that early? Oh, yes. Yes. For example, I remember going out to Chicago to record a show with Jimmy Durante and Don Amici when they were... Happened to be in Chicago and, you know, close enough so that I could go out by train and spend the night and then come back the next night. Mm -hmm. Coming through Pennsylvania at this time, I noticed these houses all with the television antennas everywhere you looked and I suddenly realized I better get out of radio because here it is even out here like Johnstown and places like that the houses uh, way down the valley had tall antennas and the ones up high had short ones but they were everywhere and all of a sudden uh, radio was slackening up and uh, whether you like television or not you had to get into it if you wanted to keep on working On Tuesday nights at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time in the spring of 1950, Fibber McGee and Molly was NBC's highest-rated show. They'd stuck with NBC while stars like Jack Benny, Edgar Bergen, George Burns, and Gracie Allen jumped to CBS. Their 17.7 was fourth overall, but their rating fell by almost six points from the year prior. It began Friday. Mm -hmm. What would you do? Would you be working with Don Quinn, going yes. over his uh, material? Oh, we'd meet on Friday, and then we would meet again Saturday, and we would meet Sunday. That was just with us and the writers, you see. And then on Monday, the cast would come in, and we'd have a reading, and then they'd go back to work, and we'd take it on Tuesday morning again. The building of the show and everything, of course, was all done beforehand. How many uh, rehearsals would you have? Two. Was one a dress rehearsal? Yes, we'd have a dress on Tuesday about noontime. Would you have an audience for that? No. Uh, no. It wasn't necessary to gauge where no. the labs were going to fall and, mm -hmm. and so on. That's right. What? If they didn't fall, it was too bad. <laughs> they didn't always, believe me. And for uh, most of the time then, from 39 on, the show originated from always. the Hollywood studios. Always. Opposite on TV, NBC aired The Life of Riley, while CBS aired Suspense. The days of NBC's Tuesday night comedy schedule being appointment radio were over. You were part of a pretty strong lineup on Tuesday night. Yes, Tuesday night, night was... Comedy was night, it, wasn't that's it? That's right. Bob Hope and then mm. Fibber McGee yeah. and Bob then Hope came in a little later. Red Skelton, Skelton was in, in there. Uh -huh. Then later, Ozzie and Harriet and Amos and Andy, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. On March 28th, Fibber McGee saw a UFO. The Johnson's Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Water Repellent Glow Coat present Fibber McGee and Molly with Bill Thompson, Gail Gordon, Arthur Q. Bryan, Dick Legrand, Elvia Allman, and me, Harlow Wilcox. The script is by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie. Music by the Kingsman and Billy Mills Orchestra. Fibber and Molly join us in a moment. Recent surveys disclose important news about Johnson's Glow Coat. They show that families with children are among the biggest users of this self-polishing floor wax that is now positively water repellent. Now, it's easy to see why. With children in the house, mud and snow are bound to be tracked in, water and food are bound to be splashed or spilled. Well, that's when you thank your lucky stars for Glow Coat. Just a flick of a cloth 
whisks mud or moisture off that hard, gleaming surface. Glow Coat stays on, stays bright, even after repeated damp mopping. And here's something else that's big news. Because it's positively water-repellent, Glow Coat now lasts up to four times longer. That means more for your money in every drop of Glow Coat you buy. Less work, too, because you have to do your floors so much less often. So tomorrow, get Johnson's Glow Coat. Whether you have children or not, you need this water-repellent floor polish for longer-lasting beauty and protection. It's in the familiar Glow Coat package. There's been a great deal of discussion lately, pro and con, about flying saucers. The pro people swear they've seen them. The con people say the pro people are victims of mass hypnotism. And here is one of the con men and his wife, Fibber McGee and Molly. And furthermore, you show me a guy that claims he's seen a flying saucer, and I'll show you a guy that the whole thing is just a mere pygmy of his imagination. You don't mean pygmy, dearie. A pygmy's a tiny little human being. Yeah, well, they claim they've seen them, too. Men from Mars, 23 inches tall with big heads. The whole thing is ridiculous. It's mass hysteria. Oh, now, I wouldn't dismiss the subject as easily as that, McGee. The paper said this morning that an army pilot chased one for 20 minutes. Yeah, but did he catch it? No, sir. Did anybody ever catch one? No, sir. And why not? Because they're an optical derision, that's why. <laughs> Look, sweetheart, army pilots aren't usually hysterical people. Transport flyers must have good eyesight or they wouldn't be flying transports. <laughs> I'm inclined to think that uh, where there's so much smoke, it can't always be a false alarm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tootsie, okay. You'll see. When they finally catch up with one of them things, you'll see they nobody ever will. This stuff is nothing new. <laughs> Who was it back in 1912 that reported seeing a spaceship from Jupiter flying low and slow over the brewery back in Peoria? <laughs> Me, that's who. You. You betcha. And what did it turn out to be? A baby caterpillar crawling across my sunglasses. <laughs> Flying saucers. Ta-da. All right. I won't argue, lover, but I'm still not convinced. No, I am. My personal opinion is that anybody that claims he's seen a flying saucer ought to go to a good optimist and get his peepers overhauled. <laughs> well, I gotta go downtown. You wanna go with me? Yes, it's a nice day for a walk. What are you going to do downtown? I gotta look up a good patent lawyer about my new invention. Oh, invention? Mm-hmm. You mean the plastic cross piece for radio aerials so the neighbors will think you have a television set? <laughs> Oh, this this uh, new type of alarm clock. It's got a sponge rubber bell that you can't hear it when it rings on Sunday morning. You ought to make a small fortune with that. Yeah. Very small. Mm. I'll get my hat, dearie. Come in. Well, if it ain't the big pink doctor with the little black bag. Hello, doctor. Hello, Dr. Gamble. Hello, McGee. Hello, Molly. Going somewhere? Yes, but I always wear my hat in the house anyway. Then if somebody comes to the door that I don't want to talk to, I can say I'm on my way out. And if it's somebody I like, I can say I just came in. In this case, we're just going out. All right, I can take a hint. I'm not as thick-skinned as somebody I know that I could reach out and touch if I hadn't just washed my hands. 
Can I drop you any place, McGee? Like maybe on the top of your head? <laughs> well, we were just going downtown, Doctor, and you can give us a lift if you like. Uh, by the way, uh, you're an educated man, Doctor. Uh, what is your opinion of these flying saucers? Educated man, my clavicle. He's the type of ignoramus that believes anything. Children, I have been practicing medicine for 30 years. Practicing is right. <laughs> I believe everything and nobody. If hundreds of reputable citizens claim to see strange things in the sky, I'd be the last one to prescribe scoff medicine. Now, there, McGee, you see, Dr. Gamble is no skeptic. Oh, he's open-minded, all right. The wind blows right through it. <laughs> so you believe in this flying saucer, Mahula? Eh, childish? I didn't say I believed in them. Oh. But I don't deny there might be such things. Huh? I've never heard a Republican play the Missouri Waltz on a piano either, but that doesn't prove it couldn't happen. <laughs> Yeah, we are. <laughs> well, come on, I'll drive you downtown. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor. Much obliged. And if I see any spaceships <laughs> on the way, I'll let you know. Thanks. You ready, Molly? Let's go, gentlemen. Flying saucers. Flying saucers. That's pure mob psychiatry. That's what it is. <laughs> Historia. I'll believe in them when I see them. And by George, I'll bet it'll be a long time. Heavenly days. Look up there. Look at the thing. Hey, what? Doc, the... it's coming this way. Oh! <laughs> It's a flying saucer. Look at the tubes and the knobs. Look at it smoke. Right in our own front yard. Yow! Great Scott, if I hadn't believed this with my own eyes, I wouldn't have seen it. Stay away from it. <laughs> Stay away from it, boys. It might be dangerous. What do you think, Doctor? I don't know. It's a weird-looking object. I gotta report this. I'll call Washington. The Hexagon Building. You wait here and keep an eye on it. Where's the phone? Hand me the phone. Hello. Hello, operator. Give me long Washington and D.C. distance. <laughs> I mean... Connect me with the Army. Yeah. Hello, Army. This is Fibber McGee in Wistful Vista. A flying saucer just crashed in my front yard. Huh? What say, Army? Rope it off and keep people away from it, eh? Okay, Army. Right. Get some rope, Doc. Get some rope. We gotta rope it off. Keep people away from it. Orders from Washington. I called them. What'd they say? Uh, they says it's a lot of silly nonsense and don't talk about it to anybody. They said it was probably just my imagination and they're gonna rush out and take pictures of it. Oh, boy, a flying saucer. Right in our own front yard. Billy Mills the orchestra and the hot canary. You were better known as McGee than you were as Jim Jordan. Did folks still call you Mr. McGee? Yes, those who don't know me do. And the only people that don't are those that, you know, that I've known all my life. I have a great picture of you standing at the microphone and Marion Jordan seated at the microphone and the caption under it says, Molly sits at the table, but Fibber, who is always keyed up, prefers to stand at the mic. Do you remember being keyed up for the broadcast? No. That was in a Saturday Evening Post article around 1949. Well, did they spell McGee correctly? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It's a strange thing, but I saw a lot of people that came from... Vaudeville, much later than we did, you know, that became big on radio, and they were frightened to death of that microphone. It was hard for us to understand that because we grew up with it from the beginning. 
How was television to do in terms of difficulty? Well, we did very little television, you see, because we stayed away from it as long as we could, you know, because, well, we just did, because right. for what everybody said we should do. Don't go into television until you have to. And about the time we decided to get into it, why, that's when Mrs. Jordan, when Molly and Marion became ill, and so we never did get into it. They did have a Fibber McGee and Molly series on television, wasn't yes. it? It was uh, Bob Sweeney and Kathy Lewis, I believe. Yes, uh-huh. Did you ever watch that show? Yes, I watched it some. I don't know whether to ask you, but how did you feel it compared with the radio? I never thought of it in that way. I never did compare it with the radio. I seen it, it was coming in low over the trees with its rockets shooting out blue flames. All right, folks, keep moving, keep moving. I seen it was in trouble, see, and I says to my wife, look, I says, a flying saucer. There's no such, she says, a thing. And I says, don't be, I says, so skeptical, I says. And she says that... All right, folks, moving on, keep moving. And you, Gabby, get off them front steps and run along. He doesn't have to get off of these steps. He lives here, don't you, Gabby? Huh? I mean, McGee. <laughs> You betcha. Now, don't start ordering me around, Flatfoot. I'm the fellow that he first seen that flying saucer. I seen it crash, too. It was coming in low over the trees, see, with its rockets shooting blue flames. I seen it was in trouble yeah, because... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard you tell it 12 times already. Hey, you kids, get away from them ropes. My, my, I haven't seen such excitement since the lion got loose at the circus and you chased him back into his cage, McGee. I wasn't chasing him. He grabbed my hamburger and I was trying to get it back. <laughs> My gosh, I was... Hey, look at the Boy Scout. Oh, handsome kid in that uniform, ain't he? Hey, bud, you want to hear about how I seen that flying saucer crash? Yes, sir, I would. That's uh, fine, Sonny. I think all you Boy Scouts should know. Oh, I'm not a Boy Scout, ma'am. I'm a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. <laughs> Retired. A lieutenant colonel. Oh, yes, sir. I'm not as young as I look. I'm 20. <laughs> uh, can you tell me, sir, did this aircraft have a tapered empennage, and did it appear to be a guided missile rather than a conventional pilot control type? Would you say it was dependent on rocket propulsion or some hitherto unknown gravity-repellent magnetic field type of turbojet power? Uh, well, uh... Tell him, dearie. <laughs> okay. Well, sir, bud, the first time I seen it, it was coming in low over them trees with its rockets shooting out blue flame. Hey, wait a minute. Hey, how do I know you ain't the agent for some foreign power buster? Are them American decorations you're wearing? Oh, uh, yes, sir. Most of them I got since the war. Oh? Spraying fruit trees. <laughs> this distinguished fruit fly award with the six twigs was for 20 combat missions over an apple orchard in Walla Walla. And you got back safely from all of them, huh? Oh, yes, ma'am. My last mission was pretty tough, though. My wingman crashed into a cider mill and came in at 12 o'clock. Hi. <laughs> well, thanks for the information, sir. Good day, ma'am. Good day, Sonny. I mean, Colonel.
four receiver. Don't get too close, Tootsie. That thing might be retroactive. Radioactive. <laughs> retroactive means it goes back. <laughs> well, this baby won't go back. Looks like our kitchen stove after I make pancakes. All battered up. Hey, folks, let us through here, please. Let us through. We're the people that see the tracks. Let us through. Look, Joe, there's that pot-bellied little moron that's been ordering everybody around. He must think he owns this place. He don't own nothing, the petty larceny little twerp. He'd probably want to charge us four bits a head for standing here. All right, folks, all right. Now, you're all trespassing on my property, you know. Everybody that wants to stay and watch, it'll cost you two bits a head. Now, now, take it easy, dearie. You can't charge people. Oh, hello there, Mr. Wilcox. Oh, hi, Junior. Let the man through, folks. Let him through. Thank Thank you. Hello, Molly. Hello, pal. Hey, here you've got a flying saucer here. Is that it over there, that pile of junk metal? That's it, Junie. Me and Molly and Doc Gamble seen it crash. I first seen it coming in low over the trees, see? Flying low with orange and green lights and five little men sticking their heads out of the porthole. <laughs> it circled the city hall and then they all bailed out and the whole... McGee! Pl- huh? They did not. Well, they must have. There was nobody in it when it hit. <laughs> well, this is very interesting. This is the first real proof we've had of interplanetary travel. Hey... I'm going to ask for a bigger sales territory for Johnson's Wax products. Huh? Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, Venus. Ah, Venus. That's for me. Maybe they don't have any linoleum on Mars, Mr. Wilcox. Well, they won't have any Mars on their linoleum either. They sure won't when I sell them that wonderful Johnson's water repellent glow coat, the finest protection against Mars and scratches and spilled things that money can buy. Hey, hey, wait a minute, Flash Gordon. <laughs> you seriously think you could take a spaceship up through the Milky Way to sell I remember talking to Jack Benny one day, because we would also double over and do the Benny show. I would be playing the other character on the Benny show, and Phil and I would ride back and forth. I remember once going from CBS to NBC, we cut across the parking lot, because the shows backed into each other. Jack was on out here. show originated 4 to 4.30, and Phil's show originated when we were both on Sundays, 4.30 to 5. They were on later out here, but that fed New York at 7 o'clock, I guess. And they got a two-passenger bicycle for Phil and I to ride so they get publicity shots of us. Right? <laughs> we almost blew both shows because neither of us can handle a bike. On Sunday, April 2nd, 1950, at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, the Phil Harris and Alice Faye show took to the air over NBC. The show peaked in December of 1948 with a rating of 26, but by this month, it was down to 8.5. Harris resisted taking the program into TV, as his wife Alice Faye remembered. In the beginning, when that show first came on, it was live, and I suspect that you had to do at least one, possibly two broadcasts every week. Was there a West Coast and an East Coast, or you just do one? That's right, we did. I think the show really came into its own when Rexall came in, because right. the, uh, first of all... The well, we were rolling then. I yeah. Mean, we really yeah. had it. We and had I, tremendous writers, too, yeah. and it was all terrific. It was really going. Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet. Yeah, they were yeah. terrific. You came in at a just perfect time for radio, yeah, 46. Right. Yeah, right. But by the time you left in 54, so much television had yeah. come in on this. Well, Phil wouldn't do it. I'm sorry. I think that's one thing I really am sorry for, uh-huh. that we didn't go into television. Well, he didn't want to do it. He couldn't see another family show. 
on TV. He was afraid. It's too bad because I would say that the Phil Harris Alice Faye show was not another family show. It was no, a very special it was show. Very, it was and, really fun. And your personalities could have easily translated to, uh, yeah, to he television. Couldn't see it. You couldn't tell him well, that. Maybe he didn't want all the extra work. TV is a hard <clears throat> I don't know. He did have a hard time, really, didn't he, for a while, or running, doing the Benny show, and then boom, immediately... Uh, oh, yeah. Doing, yeah, because in the and, rehearsals and everything, yeah. yeah. Elliot Lewis's friendship with Phil went all the way back to their days on the Jack Benny program. I asked Jack once why, because I, I was really serious. We were getting big, big laughs, and I wasn't sure why. I was very happy that we were getting laughs, and so was Phil, and so were the writers, but I wasn't sure why, and I asked Jack, and he said, well, I think it's because... The two of you, when there's a really difficult situation, do and say what everybody would really like to do and say if they had the nerve. And they don't have the nerve, so they laugh because you really do. You know, <laughs> and you just do. And it's funny that way. On that Sunday, the episode was called Frankie's Flying Saucer. Good health to all from Rexall. From Palm Springs, California, it's the Bill Harris Alice Fay Show, presented by the makers of Rexall drug products and 10,000 independent Rexall family druggists. Good evening. This is your Rexall family druggist with a welcome from the 10,000 independent druggists who have made the word Rexall part of our own store names. You can always tell us by the orange and blue Rexall sign on our windows. The sign means that we carry the 2,000 or more drug products made by the Rexall Drug Company. Many of you are already familiar with some of these famous products. Like MI-31, for example, Rexall's popular mouthwash. MI-31 is the antiseptic formula that kills contacted germs almost instantly when used full strength, yet does not harm delicate membranes of the mouth and throat. Quality like Rexall's MI-31 is what we family druggists are talking about when we tell you you can depend on any drug product that bears the name Rexall. Good health to all from Rexall. And now your Rexall family druggist brings you the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. Written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Janine Roos, Ann Whitfield, Walter Sharp and his music, yours truly, Bill Foreman, and starring Alice Faye and Phil Harris. Today is the Harris family's last day in Palm Springs. They want to take advantage of it, so Phil has insisted that they get up at 5 a.m. As we look in, they're returning to the hotel after a two-hour horseback ride. Gee, Mommy, we've had a wonderful morning. So far, we've played tennis and gone swimming and bicycle riding. What's the next thing planned for us? Well, I don't know. Let's go back to the room, wake Daddy up, and ask him. <laughs> Why doesn't Daddy ever get up in the morning? Oh, he can't on account of his health. He said he has peculiar pigmentation of the skin, and the gamma rays of the morning sun affect his epidermis. <laughs> what does that mean? It's French for beat it, get lost, and let me sleep. <laughs> Mommy, why doesn't Daddy ever get up in the morning? Oh, for a very good reason, children. He says he's like a delicate flower... And the morning sun wilts him. Why, I thought the sun
son was good for flowers. Oh, not your father. He claims he's a jasmine and only blooms at night. <laughs> I wonder if he's awake yet. Isn't that Daddy sitting over there by the pool with Uncle Willie? So it is. Look, girls, you go in and get dressed, and I'll be there in a few minutes. I want to talk to Daddy. Hmm. I wonder what they're watching so intently. Uh-oh. It's that girl on the diving board in the French bathing suit. I'll sneak up behind them and see just how interested they are. Philip, isn't she a honey? Get that red hair, that beautiful face, and that voluptuous figure. <laughs> yes, William. But what about her character? <laughs> Can she carry on an intelligent conversation? Can she cook and sew and keep house? Who cares with a figure like that? <laughs> Wait a minute. Are we reading each other's lines? <laughs> Right about that girl, Philip. We men shouldn't be taken in by what appears on the surface. She looks nice from here, but what about her background? Well, wait till she turns around, we'll find out. <laughs> you know, Willie, those two-piece bathing suits are really fascinating. So alluring. Phil! And that's why they disgust me. I bet you just can't stand the sight of it. Honey, you're so right. I've been sitting here mortified. How long have you been sitting here? Oh, I've been mortified about three hours. <laughs> I think that girl looks disgraceful posing there with her bare midriff. Every man in the place is looking. Yeah. What a spot for a Burma shave ad. <laughs> well, come on, fellas. Let's go in for breakfast. Oh, by the way, where's Frankie? Yeah, last time I saw him, a man was selling him a uranium mine for $50. Now, that sounds like something stupid enough for Frankie to fall for. Wait a for. minute, wait a minute. Remley ain't stupid. He's got more sense than to fall for anything. Hiya, Curly. Ah, hiya, Franklin. I'm glad you showed up. I hear you bought a uranium mine for $50. Oh, Curly, you don't think I fell for that, do you? I'm not gullible. I have too much sense. Besides, I was busy doing something much more important. What are you doing? Watching the flying saucers. I told you. <laughs> Lean over here and breathe out, Clyde. <laughs> you were watching what? Flying saucers. Don't tell me you're one of the few remaining people who hasn't seen one. Remley, how many fingers have I got up? Look closely. Now, you were seeing things again. I am not. I can prove it. I saw a whole squadron of them. In fact, I turned to the guy I was spending the afternoon with and said, did you see what I saw? And what did the bartender reply? Well, <laughs> I wasn't with no bartender. Oh, Frankie, a lot of people think they've seen flying saucers, but I don't believe it. I wouldn't believe it either if I hadn't seen those two guys from Mars who were driving it. <laughs> oh, I got to take the strings off his guitar. His music's driving him nuts. <laughs> Remley, let me get this straight. You saw a flying saucer with two men in it, and right away you knew that they were men from Mars. Oh, no, no, not right away. Came out in the course of the conversation. <laughs> 
You talk to the men from Mars? Well, naturally, I'm no snob. <laughs> I'll talk to anybody who's nice. All right. <laughs> anybody to believe that wild story? Newspapers believed it. I called them last night and gave them the whole story. It's in every newspaper throughout the country oh, today. Oh, no, no, Remley. How can you pull a hoax like that? When that article appears with your name in it, you'll be the laughing stock of the nation. Everybody's gonna laugh at you. Nobody's gonna laugh at me. What makes you so sure? When I called the papers, I gave them your name. <laughs> Frankie, why did you have to give him my name? You can use the publicity. Look at these headlines. Alice Faye's husband sees flying saucers and talks to men from Mars. Alice Faye's husband? Yeah, I got you a little publicity, too. <laughs> oh, you should have seen that sight. I was driving along the desert, and I saw those flying saucers come shooting from out of nowhere. Driven by men from Mars? No. No? That part I made up to make the other part sound believable. <laughs> no, Curly, this is a sight I'll never forget. Those large cylindrical objects flashing through the sky at a terrific speed. And suddenly one plummeted to earth and landed in a burst on the desert. The door opened, and those little men started swarming over the Hold it, Arson! <laughs> you saw this saucer land in the desert. Yeah, and I can prove it. I would have gone out to examine it yesterday, but it was getting dark. I'm going out now. If you'll come with me, I'll show you where it is. I ain't going. You better. I told the newspaper men to be here at 2 o'clock to get all the facts. You should be able to describe your flying saucer. Oh, Remley. The things you get me into, I don't... Oh, all right, I'll go. But you better produce a flying saucer. Yeah, I will. Alice, you want to come with us? No, no. I don't want him to think I'm a kibitzer. Who? The two men from Mars. I'll only be in the way when you four start playing canasta. All right. Now, don't be facetious, Alice, or I shall not permit you to sing Wilhelmina from that new picture. What new picture? The one you're in, Wabash Avenue. You try to stop her and I'll break your arm. <laughs> sing, lover. Cutest little girl in Copenhagen Wilhelmina She has all the fellas crazy in the noggin In Copenhagen And the roses on her cheeks And the music when she speaks And how sweet her kisses taste Sugar gainish like her mama's Danish pastry Wilhelmina Maybe soon she will elope in Copenhagen Copenhagen. Wilhelmina, she'll share everything, including his toboggan. In Copenhagen, all the other girls say no. But Wilhelmina, she says nice. All the boys call Wilhelmina Willie, but he calls Wilhelmina mine. Girl in Copenhagen. Well, I mean, 
she has all the fellas crazy in the noggin in Copenhagen. And the roses on her cheeks, and the music when she speaks, and how sweet her kisses taste. Sugar caneish like her mama's Danish pastry. Did I ever let you fellas talk me into looking for a flying saucer? It doesn't exist. We've been tramping over this desert for five hours now, and I'm hot and tired and thirsty. So am I. I give anything for a drink. How about you, Curly? Water. <laughs> Water. There's no time to wash. <laughs> I want water to drink. To drink? You're in worse shape than I am. I'm just thirsty. You're delirious. <laughs> oh, Remley, you and your flying saucers, getting it in the paper that I saw. If I don't produce one, they're going to laugh me out of town. I tell you, I saw one crash out here in the desert. It's around here someplace. Curly, look over there. That pile of twisted metal, it's my flying saucer. Remley, you're right. You see, Alice, and you thought he was having halicinations. <laughs> Come on, Curly. Help me dig this wreck out of the sand. Yeah, I'll help you. Maybe we can find some clue of where it's from, huh? Say, fellas. Fellas, I found a disc here. There's a lot of mud on it, but there, there seems to be something written underneath the mud. Well, scrape it off, honey. Scrape it off. Maybe it'll tell what planet it's from. Hurry up, Alice. Is it from Jupiter or Saturn? No. No, it starts with an M. M? It's either Mars or Mercury. Quick, Alice, what does it say? Maxwell. <laughs> an old hubcap. Maxwell. An old hubcap. So this is where Jackson buried his car. <laughs> Well, the insurance company finds out about this, they ain't gonna like it. Why? Jackson told them Rommel captured it in Africa. <laughs> Frankie, this ain't a flying saucer. It's just an old automobile wreck. Who has to know that? Let's take it into town. They'll never know the difference. After all, it fooled you and me. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. 
Each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. The Flying Saucer story came back into sharp focus on Monday of the present week. On that day, the United States News and World Report, a national news magazine, and Henry J. Taylor, a radio commentator, both came out with flat statements that flying saucers actually exist. Mr. Taylor said that there are two or more different objects that have been cited and labeled flying saucers. One of these objects, the true flying saucer, according to Mr. Taylor, is a missile round in shape, varying in size from 20 inches to 250 feet in diameter. Some are guided, others are not. The U.S. News and World Report article mentions nothing about these objects. The magazine, however, describes a jet-propelled aircraft of revolutionary design that agrees in some details with Mr. Taylor's second secret aircraft, a piloted plane capable of high speeds and high maneuverability. Both accounts agree that the present models stem directly from the XF-5U-1, the so-called Flying Pancake, a small edition of which was built and flown in 1942. On April 7, 1950, Edward R. Murrow broadcast the CBS special Report on Flying Saucers. By then, Murrow was long known for his journalistic integrity and tenacity in chasing down answers. Last night, we put a special recording line into the home of Mr. Charles H. Zimmerman of the National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics the man who originally designed the XF-5U-1. We asked him about the plane, whether it ever actually flew. This aircraft never flew. The official designation of the aircraft was the XF-5U-1, which was to be a high-performance Navy fighter. However, a low-powered, lightly-loaded version of this craft called the V-173, made a large number of successful flights. I conceived the original idea for this craft back in 1933. As a top plane designer, we asked Mr. Zimmerman to give us his opinion as to whether or not a plane could be built that could hover like a helicopter, then take off at almost supersonic speeds. He said, It would be possible using modern turboprop engines to build a machine of this type which would be capable of hovering and of also flying at all forward speeds up to possibly 550 or 600 miles per hour. A turbojet that could fly up to 600 miles per hour didn't exactly line up with witness accounts. Speed of travel aside, it wasn't at all what Dr. Craig Hunter had described earlier. It was, I would say, around uh, 150 feet around in circumference, and there was three distinct parts of it. There was an inner circle, a metal circle, which rotated around this inner circle, and an outside circle, which about one-third of the area on each side 
was covered with openings somewhat similar to an airliner opening. Now, this inner circle rotated anticlockwise very slowly, and it went over me practically right over my head, and I would say it was traveling at a speed approximately 60 to 70 miles per hour. I would say that the thing was approximately 250 to 300 feet above me, not over 400 feet. Here's Mr. Murrow again. In order to check the whole question of design, to find out whether or not a saucer-like object such as the one described by Dr. Hunter could maintain itself in flight, according to the basic laws of aerodynamics, we call for the opinion of one of the nation's outstanding aeronautical engineers. Hall Hibbard is vice president and chief engineer of Lockheed Aircraft. And here is what he has to say over the beep recording telephone. Well, my feeling is that it is possible to build and fly something that uh, looks like a saucer just from the standpoint, but I do not believe that there is such a thing at this time. I do not know of anything uh, that would be considered in that category. I'm very familiar with pretty much uh, what's going on in the way of research and development, and I know of nothing that would uh, be considered as flying saucers or flying saucer material. You can make something that looks like a saucer fly, if anybody would ever want to do it. But uh, I do not believe it would be possible with our present knowledge to have them make the speed and everything that everybody has been uh, talking about. They were clearly conflicting points of view. We went to Dr. Donald Menzel, professor of astrophysics at Harvard University and associate director of the famous Harvard Observatory, to find out just how feasible any such idea might be. Dr. Menzel had this to say. Well, I suppose that anything is possible, but I consider it extremely unlikely. Well, what could these flying bodies actually be, Dr. Menzel? Sun shining from a very distant plane, uh, uh, shining so that uh, you could see that there was an object there, but the plane so far away that you couldn't hear it. Weather balloon. You have the bright, uh, round patch at a fairly high altitude, sometimes uh, three or four of them attached together. And then again, uh, just... uh, pieces of uh, paper carried aloft. When it gets up to two or three hundred feet, you can't tell whether it's a uh, hundred feet or a thousand or ten thousand feet away. My main question for you is, how could an astrophysicist so confidently dismiss the existence of UFOs and then stumble so badly through his words when giving a rational explanation of what people could have been seeing? To follow through on the problem of whether or not disc-shaped objects could actually fly, we got in touch with Mr. David C. Prince, vice president of the General Electric Company and chief of its general engineering and consulting laboratory. Mr. Prince was having no part of flying saucers. My thought is simply that the ability of some people to kid themselves is extraordinary. For instance, the effect of searchlights on clouds has been taken to be flying disks. Even radar evidence is not conclusive here because rain in the clouds would show up on a radar screen. The only saucer-shaped aircraft which we know has flown, and that only a few times, is a propeller-powered disc developed by NACA. As a matter of fact, a cigar-shaped craft with a single revolving wing, jet-powered, could be faster and certainly would be much more maneuverable. In flight, this plane might look like a disk because of the halo created by its rapidly revolving wing. 
Such a craft would have flight characteristics similar to a hummingbird's. That could have been true. But then again, why would GE's engineering head say that tech far beyond their ability was in existence? At least in the spring of 1950, more questions remained. And now, just in case all this has added to the celestial confusion about your heads, we've summarized the data we've been able to gather, sorted out the points of agreement and disagreement among those who claim to have seen flying saucers. Here is what we found. Nearly all these observers are in agreement on the color of the objects. It's a metallic color, they say, something like aluminum or silver. Almost everybody agrees the objects are generally disc-shaped, but with wide variations sometimes balloon-like or resembling a giant rubber ball. Still others describe them as elongated cigar-shaped things. Speed of the saucers has been estimated at from zero to 1,200 miles an hour. And when we get into the question of maneuverability, the observers seem not to be able to find the precise or adequate words. They say that the saucers hover, accelerate, and decelerate rapidly. They say that some of the objects flutter, oscillate, drift, whirl, or float. There seems to be no fixed pattern of flight in cases where more than one or two disks have been reported. But several persons have said that in group flights, one of the disks seems to be of a distinct color, indicating, possibly, that this off-colored disk was the monitor or the control disk for the others. A small percentage of the observers said the disks bore light, and in five cases, at points as far apart as Alabama and California, the viewers said the disks suddenly disappeared in flight. But when we get around to estimating altitudes at which the objects were sighted, we find that some observers say they saw them at 250 feet. Others guessed the disks were at 40,000 feet in the sky. While one observer estimated the number of disks seen at 100, nearly all thought the number was less than 10 and about half those who claimed to have seen the objects said they saw only single saucers. Well, these are the things men and women in various parts of the United States say they have seen in the sky. Men of science and high government officials cast a skeptical eye at these reported sightings of celestial phenomena. So far in the course of this broadcast, there have been no reliable reports of the sighting of any new flying saucers. Frankly, we don't know the answer. We wonder, do you believe in flying saucers? You've been listening to The Case of the Flying Saucer, a special report narrated by Edward R. Murrow. The Case of the Flying Saucer was based on extensive research collected with the aid of CBS-affiliated stations and CBS newsmen across the country. Portions of this broadcast were transcribed. This program was written by Irv Tunick, directed by John Dietz, and produced by Robert Bendick and Irving Gitlin. I'd come back, uh, wound up the war in the, the China-Burma-India theater out there in the jungles, and came back to Hollywood. I was still in uniform.
because my clothes wouldn't fit. I'd lost weight. I hadn't gained weight. <laughs> so uh, my brother Jack was uh, playing on Cavalcade of America. Now, when I left, Jack Zoller was acting. I said, Jack Zoller's directing now? He says, yes, yeah. I'm working on the show this afternoon. He says, I've got a conflict. We all had conflicts in those days. He said, could you stand in for me on the first reading? It was on Cavalcade of America. He said, he's got the lead role, a character called Archie with Lloyd Nolan as the star. So I said, oh, my God, I haven't read you know, a script in three and a half years. You know, I said, I don't think I could. He says, just rehearsal. So I said, okay. So I said, okay. So I go down, and I'm still in uniform. Read the part around the table. And Jack said, how would Jack feel, you think, if I let you have this part? Oh, I said, oh, please, no, don't, don't, don't do that, don't do that. Oh, so about that time, after the first reading, Jack comes in, and Jack Zoller approaches him about it. And I said, I have none of it. No, I won't do that. And Jack said, you're doing it. And he walked out of the studio, says, you're stuck. So here I am, and I went on the air, and, you know, with, before an audience, all the lights, and I was really... I was in sort of a dream world. Sure. I, I didn't realize Still after the in show. Your uniform? I didn't realize it was a wonderful part. This Arkansas character, and uh, he just said, "I think your voice is better for it." <laughs> but after the show, I just I thought, "What have I done?" <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Was I really on the air? And it was a strange, yeah. strange <laughs> feeling. Sure. So anyway, that got me started. Neil Reagan heard it. Next day, I'm called for Dr. Christian. George Fogel, and this boy, the first week, I'm right out of the Army and working six or seven shows in the first week. And I thought it was going to take me a long time to get started again. On Saturday, July 9, 1949, Dangerous Assignment debuted on NBC starring Brian Dunleavy as Steve Mitchell. Each week, Mitchell was sent to a different location to crack into the bed of discontent and rout the perpetrators. Herb Butterfield and Betty Moran co-starred, with Hollywood regulars like the just-heard Sam Edwards filling out the supporting roles. The initial summer run ended on August 20th, but NBC picked up the series in February of 1950. That April, Ford Motors signed on for a few broadcasts. April 17th's episode was called UFOs in Ecuador. Dangerous Assignment, starring Brian Donlevy as Steve Mitchell. Morning, Commissioner. Steve. You know, this better be important. There's a certain redhead who was just dying to go for a long ride in the country today. Now I can't even give her a chance to walk back. This is important, Steve. Ever hear of the Triangle Airline? No. It's an American charter outfit owned by a man named Kovac. They fly cargo across the northern part of South America, from Ecuador to Brazil. The last ten days, three of their planes have disappeared over the jungles, vanished without a trace. Pilots haven't been heard from since. So are private airlines in trouble. Since when have we been pulling chestnuts out of the fire for outfits like that? Ordinarily, we wouldn't be interested, but the circumstances accompanying the disappearance of these cargo planes makes it our concern. What circumstances? Well, um, I don't quite know how to tell you, Steve. Oh, now, let's not be bashful, Commissioner. What do you mean? Flying saucers. What did you say? You heard me, flying saucers. Commissioner, I'm a pretty patient guy. But if you think I'm going down to South America and start looking for flying saucers... That's just what you are going to do, Steve, and your plane leaves in an hour. Now, look, don't tell me you're going to give me a Buck Rogers ray gun to shoot them down with. This is no joke, Steve. Look... 
I don't care whether it's flying saucers or flying dishpans. That area is too close to the Panama Canal for comfort. You'll be met in Ecuador by a man named Drake, the chief pilot of the airlines. He'll fill you in on the background. Well, that's it. You've got your assignment. Good luck. National Broadcasting Company is proud to present Dangerous Assignment, starring Brian Donlevy as Steve Mitchell, colorful, two-fisted government agent. At all those places of the world where danger and intrigue walk hand in hand, there you will find Steve Mitchell on another Dangerous Assignment. Well, this assignment really takes the cake. I've had my share of screw-loose jobs, but flying saucers yet. It's Wednesday night when I get to Ecuador. Drake, the chief pilot of Triangle Airlines, is waiting for me at the airport. He bustles me into the co-pilot seat of one of their cargo ships, and we take off and head east. It's about a two-hour hop to Santa Rosa, Mitchell. You should be there about midnight. What's at Santa Rosa? One of our fields. Kovac, the owner, is waiting there for you. You uh, do most of your flying at night around here, Drake, huh? Mm, all of it. Less turbulence over these mountains. You a flyer, too? Oh, now and then. Oh, too bad you're not looking for a job. If this monkey business keeps up, I'm going to be fresh out of pilots. Just what has been going on? You tell me. It's happened three times now. Radio flash from the pilot about seeing flying saucers. Then the radio goes dead and the plane's never heard of again. You searched the jungle near the route for the planes. From the air. The country's too rugged for a ground search. <laughs> Hey, what was that? Mitchell, look outside, all those lights. Yeah, hey, they look like rings or discs swirling around. They're right alongside of us. I'm going to go back aft in the plane. Maybe I can get a better look at them. Uh, Mitchell! Drake, what is it? What's the matter? Drake! The Drake just grabs at his chest and slumps over. The plane starts into a dive. I jump back into my seat and try to level it out. I remember... Noticing Drake had been flying a heading of 95 degrees, so I hold it there. By the time I can look outside again, the whirling things are gone. I reach for the radio. T3 calling Santa Rosa Tower. T3 calling Santa Rosa Tower. Over. Santa Rosa Tower to T3. Go ahead. T3 to Santa Rosa. This is Steve Mitchell. Keep in touch with me. I've got to bring this bucket of bolts in, and I don't know anything about the route or the field. Over. Santa Rosa to T3. What happened to Drake Mitchell? Over. I'll tell you about it when I get there. Right now, that's what concerns me. Over. Stay on 95 degrees. If you're on schedule, you'll be over the field in an hour. Your course follows a valley. You'll know it if you get off it all right. There's a high mountain range on each side. Over. Thanks a lot for the pleasant thought. I'll see you in about an hour. I hope. Over and out. So, for the next hour... I nurse a strange plane between two mountain ranges I can't see on a night black enough to play post office. All the while, I'm trying to convince myself I didn't see what I know I did. Drake is still unconscious, but he stirs a little now and then. Finally, I pick out the lights of Santa Rosa Airfield and manage to bring the ship in okay. Mitchell? Yeah? I'm George, Kovac's nephew. Yeah? I was talking to you on the radio. Oh. Sure glad you made it, okay? You are glad. Come on, give me a hand with Drake here. Okay. Hey, he's coming out of it. Yeah. Drake. Drake. 
Uh, what? Oh, my chest. What happened to you, Drake? I don't know. Right after we saw those things, I suddenly felt like I'd been kicked in the chest by a mule. That's all I can remember. But there's not a mark on you. Yeah, great. Flying saucers aren't enough. Now we've got invisible rays. Well, why didn't it hit you too, Mitchell? I don't know. Wait. I just started aft when it happened. Guess it's a good thing for you. You did. Yeah. Come on, Joyce. We'll get Drake taken care of, and then we'll talk to your uncle. Mr. Mitchell, your description of what you saw during your flight tallies with those the missing pilots radioed in. I tell you frankly, I'm on the ragged edge with this airline. I've lost three planes. One more and I'm ruined. Isn't your line insured, Mr. Kovac? Why, yes, but this is more than money. It's a matter of prestige. Look, Uncle Emil, if you'd taken my advice a month ago when the Van Horn Exporting Company wanted to buy you out... George, for the last time, I'll not tolerate any advice from you as to how to run my affairs. Sure, you stick your nose in all my affairs, but I'm not supposed to open my mouth where yours are concerned. If you don't keep a civil tongue in your head... (laughs) Look, uh, gentlemen, I don't want to stir up a hornet's nest between you, but what is this Van Horn Exporting Company? They ship crates of carved wooden statues regularly on our planes. Our largest customer, as a matter of fact. About two months ago, they approached me with a substantial offer to buy the line. But just before the trouble started, they notified me that they were withdrawing their offer. Bad business conditions, they said. Any particular reason why business should be bad? Oh, there have been rumors about some mysterious revolutionary party organizing lately. That sort of thing always has a bad effect on business in these countries. I see. Uh, Mitchell, uh... What'll be your first step? Well, I think I'll pay a visit to the Van Horn Exporting Company in the morning. Why? You certainly don't think they're involved in this flying saucer deal, do you? Look, when you don't know where to start, one place is as good as another. Besides, I'm sure the Van Horn Company is a lot closer than Mars. This the office of the Van Horn Exporting Company? Yes, it is. Well, I'd like to talk to the boss. Is he around? Yes, I'm the boss, as you call it. Huh? You? I'm Herta Van Horn. Oh, well, looks like the company is in good hands. Thank you. What can I do for you, Mr... Mitchell. Steve Mitchell. Uh, Your company ships cargo pretty regularly with the Triangle Airlines. I have been, but if their present trouble continues, I think I will have to make other arrangements. You're down here to investigate that trouble, aren't you? I don't remember telling you that. One picks up things here and there. Yeah, I guess one does. A couple of months ago, you offered to buy the airline, didn't you? Yes, I did. But that was before the trouble started. Naturally, I'm not interested now. Well, according to my information, you withdrew your offer just before the trouble started. (laughs) I see that you too pick up things here and there. Yes, I began to hear rumors about the formation of a revolutionary party. I decided it would be unwise to make a large investment under those conditions. I see. You know, that's the second time I've heard this rumor about a revolutionary party. Oh? What about it? Oh, nothing. Except it seems like a pretty convenient time to start that rumor circulating. I don't know what you're trying to prove, Steve, but I wish you luck. Thanks, Herta. Maybe meeting you has been luck. One never knows. I expect I will see you again. You expect right, Herda, and soon. Mm-hmm. 
Mitchell. George told me I'd find you here in the office. Yeah. Come on in, Drake. How are you feeling today? Well, a lot better, thanks. My chest still hurts a little. Mm. I'd sure give a lot to know what hit me last night. So would I. Doing some paperwork this morning? Yeah. I've been checking cargo invoices and radio logs. I've discovered a couple of pretty interesting things. Huh? What? Look, each time a plane has disappeared, it's been carrying a shipment from the Van Horn Company. Hmm? Well, what does that prove? I don't know yet. Take a look at this copy of the invoice. Mm-hmm. Well, what about it? How many Van Horn crates are listed there? Uh, let's see. Uh, six. Yeah. But isn't that number a little smudged on this copy? Yeah, it looks like it. Who handles these invoices on this end? Well, sometimes Kovac and sometimes George. Hmm. How big are those uh, Van Horn crates? Mm, five, six feet long. Now, what are you getting at, Mitchell? I'm not sure yet, but here's something else. According to the radio logs, in each case, the pilot reported sighting the flying saucers about 20 minutes after takeoff. So? Now, take a look at this map. 20 minutes out at the course and speed your planes fly should put them right near this mountain. Yeah, Mount San Anselmo. Look, what are you getting at? Well, suppose those flying saucers came from the ground, Drake. You know... You tell me you're going into those jungles. Sure. You know anyone who could guide me? Seems to me one of those mechanics has a brother named Pablo, some sort of a guide, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Mitchell, you ought to think this over before you go in. I have thought it over. Now, see if you can round up that guide, will you? I'd like to get started as soon as possible. How far you figure we've come since we left the jeep, Pablo? Well, at least ten miles, sir. Well, we ought to be getting close to the spot, then. Brother, this jungle is thick. This is the only trail through it, huh? See, I can believe it. Senor, watch out! Huh? Why the flying tackle? Look, senor. Huh? Look there in the trail in front of you. I don't see anything. Quiet. Look more closely. Hidden by the underbrush on the ground. Yeah, I see it now. A rope noose spread over the trail. See, and over there, senor. See the tree which is bent almost double? Mm-hmm. Another step and we'd have been dangling from that tree like two apples. Come on, let's bring that trap. Quick. Apple, senor, you... Look, someone's obviously hiding around here waiting to catch us dangling from that rope. Let's make him think he succeeded. Here's a dead branch beside the trail. Give me a hand with it. See, si. Got it? See. Si. Okay. Stop here. The trigger is probably under that little pile of leaves, senor. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Okay, we'll toss this branch on top of it and see what happens. You ready? Let her go. Look at that. The rope jerked that branch right up in the air. Now get down here beside the trail. Senor, I hear something. Yeah, so do I. Somebody coming through the underbrush. Okay, let him get right on top of us, then we'll jump him. Now. Ah! Watch it, Pablo. He's got a gun. Yeah, but I have him a chance. No, no, no. Hold it. Ah! Great. Did I did something wrong, senor? Well, he'd have done the same to us if we'd given him a chance. But I wanted to get some information from uh, him. I will take a look. <laughs> uh, there is nothing in his pocket, senor, except this scrap of paper. Let me see it. See, si, see, si, here you are. La Posada. 
Eight o'clock. What's La Posada mean? That's the name of a bar in Santa Rosa. Mm-hmm. Sounds like he had a date. Okay, I'll keep the date for him. Maybe I can find out who's been going all out to kill me. In a moment, you'll hear the second act of Dangerous Assignment, starring Brian Donlevy, after this brief word from the Ford dealers of America. This episode featured Elliot Reed as Drake. The beautiful new Ford. No wonder. Well, I once asked Orson Welles, I said, how did you do so great on the radio? And he says, you just do it. That's all. You just do it. That's right, and he was the master of that. Doing anything, He came in sometimes and did shows. I was on many of them. Uh, where he hadn't even rehearsed with us at all. Uh-huh. I mean, he was doing the Five Kings up in Boston. This is after the original huge impact of the Mercury Theater. And then he was, by then, he was a huge star. Uh-huh. And we were his Mercury actors. Uh, and uh, so, as I told you when we were chatting before, uh, Paul Stewart, a wonderful actor, um, and he had become, I guess, a close friend of Orson's and was very skillful and knew technique and knew all kinds of technical things. Paul Stewart was responsible for uh, really the direction of many of Orson's radio shows and at the service for Paul Stewart, Jack Hausman, John Hausman, we were walking down the street together, Norman Lloyd, John Hausman and I were walking down the street and um, how, we called him Jack Hausman from those days, and Jack said, I, I'm so glad that uh, somebody spoke about Paul and what he contributed as a director to Orson, which was true. So, um, but Orson, uh, yeah, he could just get up on that platform, and he had ne- we'd never read it with him, nothing. I mean, it was just... But we were used to that, you see. So, I mean, we were rated. We were rehearsed. Paul rehearsed us. I mean, you've got the script in front of you. How can you... It was wonderful. It was like stealing money, I always felt. And uh, who's against that? I loved radio, and it was, as I say, it was like a steal. Those days were just wonderful, because the stress was not there. After Ford, Wheaties sponsored the program for their big parade in the summer of 1950, but it was short-lived. Dangerous Assignment ran in the States until February 13, 1953. It never achieved widespread fame. A syndicated version was produced the following year in Australia, with Lloyd Burrell as Mitchell. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Douglas Edwards speaking from CBS News headquarters in New York. We present now a special news program on the Korean crisis. It is morning in Korea, and American bombers and fighter planes are attacking tank formations of the invading North Korean communists in line with President Truman's historic order committing the United States Air Force and its Navy to aid the forces of the South Korean Republic. 
Late word from Korea indicates that American help came just in the nick of time. Like with Germany, Korea was divided into occupation zones after World War II. The Soviets helped establish communism in the North, while the U.S. supported the South. By June of 1950, fighting along the border had been going on for months. However, on the weekend of June 24th, bulletins increased, and it became clear a major crisis was underway. After a U.N. Security Council meeting, President Truman's motion to send troops was approved. Less than five years after the end of World War II, the U.S. was back at war. So far, the question of Russia's position remains a secret of the Kremlin. American diplomatic officials are still hopeful the Soviets will refrain from openly joining in the Korean struggle and permit the fighting to end without the threat of a third world war. As a matter of fact, the State Department announced a few minutes ago that the United States has asked Russia to use its influence with the North Korean authorities for the withdrawal of the invading forces and the cessation of hostilities. And now the Korean crisis as seen from Washington. Key members of Columbia's staff in the Capitol are standing by, and for their part of the story, we switch now to CBS Washington, Griffin Bancroft reporting. That August, the manager of a Montana semi-pro baseball team took color film of two UFOs flying over Great Falls. The next year, several V-shaped formations were spotted flying over Lubbock, Texas. Witnesses included professors and students from Texas Tech University. Then in the summer of 1952, some of the most famous UFO sightings of the 20th century occurred. In July, a series of sightings happened at three separate airports in Washington, D.C. Simultaneously in Norfolk, Virginia, Pan American pilots saw eight large glowing red objects. The sightings made front page headlines around the nation and led to the formation of a CIA panel. Ten days later, two U.S. Air Force colonels saw three unusual aircrafts flying in formation over Carson Sink, Nevada. And perhaps most sensationally, in Flatwoods, West Virginia on September 12th, six local boys and a woman reported seeing a UFO land and a spade-headed creature near the landing site. It was met with considerable skepticism. Ladies and gentlemen. Does that include me? It certainly does. The secret word is water. W-A-T-E-R. Really? You bet your life. The more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers of America present Groucho Marx in You Bet Your Life. The comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood. And here he is, the one, the only... I didn't know he was running. Oh, that's me. Well, here I am again with $1,000 for one of our couples. And if any of them say the secret word, the duck here will come down and pay him $100 in cash. 
The way tonight is water. In October of 1952, You Bet Your Life was in the middle of its sixth season on the air and third over NBC. That month's rating was 8.8, down significantly from its peak, but still good enough for fifth overall. The October 15th secret word was water, and the male member of the middle couple had a very unusual hobby. Something you find around the house. Mrs. Muriel Stetson, they say you're pretty tall. How tall are you, Muriel? I'm six foot and a quarter of an inch. You're six feet and are you... Uh, That's without shoes. That's without shoes, huh? Well, are you frequently without shoes? Occasionally. I love to go without shoes. Do you? Well, hand them over. I'll wear them, huh? Really? Well, I, I'm sure the quality is every inch as good as the quantity. Thank you. <laughs> what a sickening thing to say to anybody. <laughs> Arthur Levov, eh? Yes. Is that the way you pronounce it? Levov? Levov. Do you like dealers better or dealer? Well, dealers. Dealers. Well, that would go with Livov. Uh, Livov, it sounds like a cow pulling her foot out of the mud. <laughs> what kind of a moniker is Livov? Uh, or is that a perfume? It's supposed to be a French name. A French name? Oh, I mm. see. Uh, where are you from? Uh, Arturo? New York City. New York City, huh? Well, that... Is that part of France? Uh, uh, French Quarter? No. What is a French Quarter? That's two francs, isn't it? Uh, who do you work for, uh, Arturo? Uh, Pan American World Airways and Compania Mexicana de Aviación. Oh, well, I'm the same to you. Huh? <laughs> and uh, do you have a job, Muriel? Yes, I model clothes for tall girls, for tall fashions of California, and tall togs. Oh, tall togs, huh? Tall togs out of school? Is that what you call it, huh? <laughs> Why is it you tall girls always marry skinny little runts? How big is your husband, for example? Well, he's a growing boy. He's six foot nine, and he weighs 270 pounds. Say, he's a big little runt, isn't he? Huh? <laughs> now, Mr. Levov, uh, since you're connected with the airlines, do you do any flying yourself? I mean, in a plane, of course. Uh, no more. I am more concerned uh, with the study of flying saucers. Oh, well, how, how long have you been interested in flying saucers? About 20 years. Where do you think they come from? Well, there are several schools, uh, theories on that score. Uh, uh, some believe that they're from the solar system. Uh, the rest of us who subscribe to extraterrestrial visitors think that they are from another system entirely. And what kind of characters do you think are in these sources? Well, physically, uh, we subscribe, by we I mean those of us who go into this, we subscribe to the theory that they are probably humanoid in appearance. Uh, by humanoid, I mean that uh, that they will resemble us structurally. Uh, physiologists have concluded that the human figure is the best adapted for intelligent life. You're referring to your own, of course. Huh? <laughs> well, uh, for example, uh, the greatest medium to transmit thought into artifacts, things that you can make and use, tools, is the hand, the opposed thumb. No other form of life seems to have that. So it is reasonable to assume then that while they may be reptilian or they might be even a form of insect life, still they would resemble us in that they would have arms and hands. Well, you think as soon as they get a thumb, they'll get in touch with us? But <laughs> <laughs> well, what is all this galloping crockery uh, doing here, do you think? I believe they are watching us, uh, evaluating our civilization, trying to cope with the problem of how to get in touch with us. Well, with the shape the world's in, if they're smart, they'd be over bothering Venus instead of us. <laughs>
Well, I don't know if there are any sources or not, but they certainly make interesting conversation. Now, folks, tune in again next week. Same time, same station. When our subject will be, is that funny little line across Panama Canal really a canal? <laughs> or is the earth really inhibited? Inhabited? <laughs> well, I must say, it's been interesting talking to you two, and I hope you win a reasonable amount of money in the quiz. That's about as God of a statement as I expect to make tonight. <laughs> right now, you're going to play your bet your life. Beat our other couples, and you'll get a chance at the $1,000 question. The engaged couple went broke, so these people have a clear field. The secret word is still water. Here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. You selected famous men of history. Each of these men played a prominent part in changing the history of his country. I'll give you the man's name, and you tell what country he's from. Here's right, your first question. How much will you bet? Um... Fifteen, all right? Talk up, kids. Fifteen? Uh, Seventeen. Seventeen. Seventeen dollars. Okay. All right. Richelieu was a famous man of what country? France. France is right. You're on your way. You have thirty-seven dollars. Remember, you're going for a thousand dollars tonight. How much of you thirty-seven will you risk this time? Thirty-five. Paul von Hindenburg was a soldier of what country? Germany. Germany is correct. <laughs> you now have seventy-two dollars. How much of the seventy-two are you going to try? Seventy. Okay. Seventy. Seventy, all right. Uh, Benito Juarez was the leader of what country? Mexico. Mexico is correct. You've now climbed to $142. This is your last chance to beat the other couple, uh, couples. How much will you bet? $142. Have you discussed this? Uh... No, that's all right with me. Okay. From what country was Oliver Cromwell? Great Britain. If England is okay. We'll decide that. And you'll wind up with $284. Thanks and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers. You like Dealers or Dealers? <laughs> have, you, have you thought about it since Yes, I've been. And what, what is your conclusion? I, I like Dealer, I think. Dealer, you like Dealer? I like Dealer. So in the future, I'll say Dealers. Terror on the Air is an auditory escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. No! Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. Interior Secretary Chapman says we have nearly reached the bottom of the barrel in some of our natural resources. He says we've dug deep into our mineral deposits, drained off much of our petroleum, depleted many of our forests. And he adds, we can never again afford to gorge and waste. The chief of the Navy's nuclear research program, Dr. Erner Liddell, said today that the so-called flying saucers are nothing but plastic balloons used in cosmic ray research. And William Webster, chairman of the Research and Development Board, says there is nothing to flying saucers. Mr. Webster also told reporters, 
Everybody knows there will be an atomic artillery shell someday. Did you see this item in the morning paper, Billy? What item is that, Ralph? You know, what we were talking about. It says the Air Force announced today a powerful new flare for night photography and said the device has been responsible for some reports of flying saucers in the last two years. Well, maybe so, Ralph, but what about the reports of flying saucers from Europe and Korea, India, yeah. and Africa, and gee, all over the world? Well, they, that's true, but, well, let's wait till Art comes over. He's, uh, he's bringing a friend, you know, Art? who's quite a famous scientist. He has a telescope uh, near Mount Palomar, oh. and with a special camera. He's actually photographed flying saucers in outer space, that's what Art says. You, you mean he's actually photographed those? What's his name? Uh, Professor Adamski, I think Art said. He could explain a lot of things about this. Well, I sure hope so. Yeah, I do too. You know, sometimes I wonder, will we ever learn to, to live long enough to learn the whole truth about the flying saucers? Oh, hello there. Come in. This is the backyard. We're on CBS Radio here every afternoon now. I'm Ralph Story. That's Billy Wardell at the keyboard. And we're expecting Art Wenzel with his accordion in a minute or two, and a special guest, too. Billy and Art will play for us, and we'll hear some songs by everybody's prettiest neighbor, Miss Roberta Lynn. So, hope you spend a few restful moments with us here. Have a lawn chair there, and you're always welcome in the backyard. Gee, there's been so much published and written and said about flying saucers, I'm awfully anxious. Oh, oh yeah. Hi, Art. You know, it's about I, time. Yeah, I tried to hurry. <laughs> uh, the professor's over at the house. He's fixing up. He's shaving and getting refreshed. He's, he's here. Gonna, he's oh, here. he's here, and he's going to be over, and believe me, wait till you hear what he has to tell us. Boy, I can't wait. Oh, he told me a few things, but I just told him, wait until you... What's what was that? that? Hey, what in the world? Which well, way did it go? It's a jet, honey. Uh, well, they go over so fast you can't tell which way they've gone. They start over there, and they go beyond the horizon before you can name it. Wow, I Ralph Story was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan on August 19, 1920. He served as a U.S. Army fighter pilot during World War II and started a career in broadcasting after the war. His big break came in 1948 when he was hired to host and direct an early morning show on KNX in Los Angeles. Story's casual style and witty observations about life in L.A. won him national recognition. He went on to do various shows before going into TV in the 1950s. This afternoon's show, Ralph Story's Backyard, featured story, sidekicks, and musical accompaniment. On July 16, 1953, his guest was UFO follower George Adamski. Adamski claimed to have met with friendly Nordic aliens and to have taken flights with them to the moon and other planets. Many of Adamski's assertions were widely disputed. Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, head of Project Blue Book, the U.S. government's Air Force group assigned to investigate UFOs, considered Adamski to be a talented con artist and likened him to P.T. Barnum. 
you must know. be Professor Adamski. How do you do? Uh, this Won't is you uh, glad to meet This you. is the professor. Uh, here's Miss Roberta Lynn. Oh, how do you and, do, uh, Professor? I'm very, very, very glad to know you. And Come on in. Ralph, uh, Ralph Story. And here's Billy Wardell. He's sitting at the piano. How, how do you do, Professor? Gee, it's a real pleasure to have you visit us in the in the backyard. Art was telling us that you know more about flying saucers than anybody. Is that true? Well, I know a little bit, but let me say something here. What a beautiful patio here. What do you got that rabbit running around there? Cutting your grass down? (laughs) (laughs) No, you know that rabbit eats the zinnias at night? No kidding. No kidding. That pretty little bunny, you see him hopping around here every now and then. He's an enemy of mine, believe me. He (laughs) eats all the leaves off the zinnias, leaves nothing but the stem. I think they're cute. Yeah, but I hate his howling at night. (laughs) I've got a new name for him, Stinky. No, let's not talk about rabbits. Here's the professor who knows about flying saucers, and I've I've got a million questions I'd like to ask you, Professor. Keep on asking them. All right. Uh, 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 Well, are there flying saucers? Absolutely. Uh, Just as real as our planes are today that we have been so accustomed to. Where'd they come from? Well, they're coming from planet Mars, planet Venus, and as well as uh, other planets, also from the Wolf Star 359, which is late uh, late eight uh, light years away from our system. What is that, a star? Uh, it's a system. I see. Like ours, solar system. This uh, uh, eight light years are uh, quite a distance because one light year is something like 60, uh, 6 billion miles. Yeah, I know it's some distance. Yes, uh, it is a quite a distance, but they're coming from all those different places. Well, listen, Professor, if these things are really here now, how come we haven't ever seen them, you know, before this? Well, we have not been air-minded as we are today. We have not uh, thought of anything else but birds flying through space, and sometimes even the birds have been noticed to come, uh, strange birds, noticed to come to into this world that no one seemed to know where they come from, and it's possible they could be coming from other planets as well, like the flying saucers do. Have you ever seen a flying saucer? Oh, yes, I've seen many of them. I have photographed quite a number of them. You've taken Uh, pictures? Yes. Uh, The electronic uh, system of the U.S. Navy asked me to cooperate with him one time. That was in 47. See if I could catch some pictures of the flying uh, objects, uh, which I did. You have the pictures Yes, I have taken some pictures, and all my pictures at present are with the U.S. Air Force. Well, what do you know about that? Well, How do they travel? Uh, well, they travel uh, by magnetic uh, force, as it is known, which is nothing but the same kind of power that is customary known as uh, static electricity producing our lightning, as we have it every now and then, had it the last few days. Oh, it's magnetic power that they're using then. That's huh? right, utilizing nature's own forces. How do they make the fast turn? That they do all... not make the turns, I don't believe, because as I have talked to one man, they do not bla- uh, make what? the turns. They just go forward and then sideways and wait. backwards and every which way like that, but do not make turns. Wait, wait a minute. You said you'd talk to a man. What man? Yeah. Well, on November the 20th, of which I'm writing a book now to be published in the next two months, um, uh, Noah is going to be titled as Flying Saucer Have Landed. At that time, this saucer did land at uh, the desert. It's 20 mi- about 10 miles from the desert center on the way to Arizona on that Parker Road. Oh, Parker, uh, Arizona. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Uh, about 10 miles from Desert Center on that uh, road there. And the ship come down at the time, and I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing one person out of that ship, which was a, fl- a saucer come out of a mothership. You mean a man out of the flying saucer? That's right. You mean you actually talked to Yes, him? I did. We went out there with the hope of catching a good picture of uh, ships flying through there, as they have been reported. And uh, I did take uh, seven pictures at the time. And I didn't know whether it all turned out on good or not when I started dismantling. Well, this uh, ship finally disappeared, 
and then a man appeared, and I walked up to where the man was waving to me to come, and to find out after I got there there was a spaceman and he was a Venetian. You, he was a Venetian? That's correct. You mean, uh, you know very mean from Venice? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, not from Venice, uh, California, not at all. He was from Venus, oh, planet Ralph. Venus. From the planet Venus, <laughs> That's right. Really? That's at least what he said. I finally got him to say it in this manner because he didn't know what the word Venus meant. So I pointed to, uh, to the sun. It was 1 o'clock at noon. And I orbited and called the orbits by number or by name as well. And when I could come to the orbit number 3, which is the Earth's orbit, I pointed to myself in the Earth. Then he got the idea, and he pointed to the sun and made one orbit, and then the second orbit, and then he stopped, and he pointed to himself and to that orbit. That's Venus. And uh, that uh, meant Venus. Then, after I said uh, Venus four times, he stated, he also repeated the word Venus. So I knew that way that he was from Venus. Weren't you Uh, frightened? Not at all. It seemed that the man had some kind of a power around him that uh, didn't give you any fright of any kind, didn't put you on guard against him or anything like that. What did he look like? Yes. He was a very good-looking man, a, a far better looking than most of us are today. Wow. And <laughs> well, I know. He had beautiful, beautiful long hair, very oh, wavy, I mean, and ladies would give any amount of money for that kind of hair. I and suppose it's really not illogical that he should look better. He's some ways ahead of us, isn't he? That's right. A good many thousands of years, oh, at least. Yeah. Really? <laughs> so we'll give you his uh, age and, uh, and uh, height and weight as we have judged him. Uh, he was about 28 years of age, 5 foot 6, and around 135 pounds in weight. And uh, as far as time is concerned, as how far ahead of us he is concerned, he should be a long ways ahead of us because in Ezekiel, in the Bible, chapter 1, it tells you that flying saucer have been seen coming to this earth 2,546 years ago. You mean there's a reference to it in the Bible? That's correct. Oh, there's a hymn about them. Wait, I got a hymn book here. Let me look and see if I can find the hymn. Yes, what hymn? Ezekiel, uh, Saw the Wheel, something like that. Oh, wait a minute. Ezekiel Saw the Wheel. Here, I got it. I worked the Roy Rogers show. Roy Rogers, he really had difficulty reading. Uh, if, it, if it weren't for Dale Evans sort of coaching him, but he was a lovely man. He was a delightful person. He was sweet. On the other hand, there was Gene Autry. Mm-hmm. He was one, an angel. One of the, 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 one of the least pleasant people I've ever met in my life. Who was the head of Hopper clone in the old days? It was Hedda Hopper and the other one. Luella Parsons? Parsons. Do you remember Luella Parsons' radio show on ABC? Luella Parsons, God bless her, read to the end of each line as though it were the end of a period, the end of a sentence or a paragraph. Right, right. The end of a line. It could have no punctuation at all. It could be the word the, and she would drop it as though it were... A full stop. I was on the show one time when she said, Van Johnson was born in India. Napolis, Indiana. (laughs) Oh, I love it. (laughs) Try try doing radio with people like this. The Roy Rogers Radio Show. Yes, folks, it's the Roy Rogers Radio Show for the whole family. Adventure, suspense, mystery, and music. Starring Roy Rogers, King of the Cowboys, and Dale Evans, Queen of the West. 
with Pat Brady, the Mellow Men, and an all-star cast. And now, here to greet you with the song of the story, Arroy and Dale. Far away places with strange-sounding names. Well, good evening, folks. Greetings again to the whole family. Our song tonight is about faraway places, and so is our story. It's a very unusual story and one that we really can't explain. But we thought you might enjoy hearing it and then maybe draw your own conclusions and arrive at your own explanation for the mysterious series of events that took place when we visited Paul and Julia Sanders a few months ago. We'd been down to El Paso on a personal appearance engagement, and Paul was a scientist at the Atomic Research Center about 30 miles outside of town. Paul and Julia had been friends of ours for many years, so of course when they invited us to spend a few days with them, we accepted. They lived in a rented house in El Paso because Julia wasn't allowed inside the Atomic Center. The night we arrived, she told us that Paul had spent the previous night and all that day at the center, but that she expected him home shortly. It's so good to have you here. Paul ought to be along any minute. It's good to be here, Julia. We've sure been looking forward to it. Well, I'll say. <laughs> What's that I smell cooking? Oh, that's probably Paul now. Excuse me. Yes? Mrs. Sanders? Yes. I'm Forbes from the Bureau in Washington. Here's my identification. Oh. Oh, yes, please come in. Thank you. Is uh, your husband here, Mrs. Sanders? No, but I expect him shortly. Uh, is there anything I can do? When did you see him last, Mrs. Sanders? Well, yesterday morning when he went to work. He didn't come home last night. He phoned and said he'd have to spend the night at the center. He does that sometimes. Yes, I know. You're sure that you haven't seen or heard from him in the past few hours? What is it, Mr. Forbes? Has something happened to Paul? We don't know, Mrs. Sanders. We really don't know much of anything. Except that your husband seems to have disappeared. Roy Rogers was born on November 5, 1911, in Cincinnati, Ohio. He spent much of the early 1930s performing with groups like Uncle Tom Murray's Hollywood Hillbillies, the Texas Outlaws, and the Rocky Mountaineers. In mid-decade, he joined up with Bob Nolan to form the Sons of the Pioneers. By 1935, they were appearing in bit parts for Republic Pictures. Two years later, Republic's top cowboy, Gene Autry, quit in a dispute, and Rogers became a star. He bought a Palomino Colt, named it Trigger, and taught it tricks that were guaranteed crowd-pleasers. Rogers was soon nip and tuck with Audrey at the box office. In the mid-1940s, he was among the top ten moneymakers in the entire industry. He came to radio in 1944 over Mutual. His second wife, Arlene, died in 1946. He married his co-star, Dale Evans, on New Year's Eve 1947. Hollywood Radio's best loved working with Roy. His radio show moved to NBC in 1951, where he also ventured into TV. In 1953, new sponsor Dodge 
asked the show to be more adult-oriented. Writer-director Ralph Rose came up with a mystery format with Evans's song usually figuring into the plot. The January 27, 1955 episode was called Faraway Places. I'm glad to meet you, Mr. Rogers, Miss Evans, Mr. Brady. How do you here. do, sir? Mr. Rogers, this might be a very fortunate coincidence, your being here. Perhaps you can help. Well, we'll be glad to do anything we can, Mr. Forbes. When did you first discover that Paul was gone? About 7 o'clock this morning. It's almost supper time. Why haven't you let me know before this? We've been searching the grounds and buildings of the center. It's a large place, you know. We, we wanted to be sure, absolutely sure, that he was missing. Julia, did Paul drive his car to the center yesterday? Yes. Well, that might be a lead, Mr. Forbes. Try looking for the car. We know where the car is, Miss Evans. Where? In the parking lot inside the center. Oh. Well, then Paul didn't leave the center in the car. Miss Evans, getting in and out of an atomic research center is as hard as getting into the White House without a pass. There are three checkpoints that everyone must pass through. Paul Sanders checked in at 8.30 a.m. yesterday morning. He was not checked out. Well, gee whiz. Gosh, oh, hemlock. That makes it pretty simple. He must still be there. Yeah, but he isn't. But, Mr. Forbes, isn't it possible that he could have left some other way? Besides going through the checkpoints, I mean. Well, I don't see how. The entire area is surrounded by a fence over 15 feet high and patrolled by armed guards. The fence is charged with electricity. Anyone who touches it would be instantly killed. Mm. Now, frankly, we're up against a blank wall. Paul isn't inside the center, but we can't understand how he could have gotten out. Mr. Rogers, uh, would you care to come over to the center and have a look around? Maybe a fresh mind on this, uh, well, perhaps you'll notice something that I've overlooked. Sure, Mr. Forbes. I'll be glad to. Good. I'll leave a pass for you at the outer gate. Suppose you meet me in my office tomorrow morning. <laughs> See your pass, sir? Sure. All right, Mr. Rogers. You may enter the radiation detection area. If your clothing or anything on or about your person is radioactive, an alarm will sound. Walk straight ahead, sir. After you pass through the detection lock, you'll see Mr. Forbes' office on your left. Thank you. Tagman here. You are uh, Rogers, yeah? Yes. I am Professor Braun. Mr. Forbes told me you were coming here, Rogers. I am to be your escort. Oh, well, thank you. Morning, Roy. Professor? Uh, good morning, Mr. Forbes. Sit down. I've asked Professor Braun to take you around the center, Roy. Show you the room he shared with Paul. Sanders' personal belongings are still there. Personal belongings? But I understood that Paul only stayed here overnight occasionally. That's right. Well, what do you mean by his personal belongings? When Paul Sanders disappeared here, Rogers, he was wearing his pajamas, his bathrobe, and his slippers. 
The rest of his things are still in the room. As you can see, the room is padlocked. This was done by security as soon as I discovered that Paul was gone. And uh, when was that, Professor? Uh, yesterday morning, about 7 o'clock. When I awoke, he was gone. You mean to say that you were in the room all night with him and that he left without disturbing you? <laughs> Since I am now an American citizen, Herr Rogers, I sleep very soundly. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Paul simply put on his bathrobe and his slippers and walked out. He made no noise, at least not enough noise to awaken me. Uh, this is the closet. You see his suit, top coat, shoes, socks, underwear. And here on the dresser, his billfold, wristwatch, car keys, and identification pass. I see, but, uh, hey, what's this piece of rock on the desk? Mm, must have belonged to Paul. Perhaps a uh, paperweight? Hmm. Funny looking thing, isn't it? Oh, uh, hey. It's sure heavier than it looks, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it seems to be very dense. Perhaps one of Paul's experiments. I see. Well, I think that about covers everything in here. Now, I will show you the outer area and the security with which we... Professor? Yeah? Have, uh, have you got any theory about Paul's disappearance? Yeah, Herr Rogers. I have a theory. What? <laughs> no one would believe me. It, uh, it is too fantastic. Try me. Well, you have been told that there's no way for a man to leave this center without passing through the checkpoints. But this is not strictly true. Theoretically, there, there is a way. One way. Really? How? By going up, Herr Rogers. Straight up. Hello? Miss Evans? Yes? One moment, please. Here you are, Roy. She's on the phone. Thank you. Hello, Dale. Roy, have you found out anything? No, not really, Dale. I, I'm just on my way out of the center... I'll be there in about a half an hour. How's Julia? Oh, she's very upset, Roy. Didn't you learn anything? I'm afraid not, Dale. Is Julia there? No. She went for a walk over to Davis Park. Why? Nothing. I, uh, I'll tell you when I get there. All right, Roy. See you later. Bye. Julia went for a walk over to Davis Park. I see. Roy, I think I'd better have her watched. Why don't you let me talk to her first? Well... Okay, but I'm sure you realize how serious this is from many angles. Paul was working on a top-secret project. He must have found a way to leave the center without being seen, and he must have had a reason not to take his clothes and personal effects with him. We've got to find out how he left and why. I'm sure he'll contact his wife sooner or later. He's very much in love with her. Yes, I know. I'll question her. Good. I, I hate to think this of Paul Sanders. He... He was cleared by security right down the line. But, well, there's always a chance that... It... 
Well, that's a terrible thing to say, but... You mean there's a chance that he turned traitor, went over to the other side? It's a possibility. There's another possibility, too. What's that? It's possible that Paul Sanders is dead. Okay, Roy, here's the detection lock straight ahead. You can find your way from here. Sure, thanks. I'll call you in the morning after I've talked to Julia. Good. So long. Bye. Mr. Rogers, sir, he's been contaminated by radiation. Oh, don't be alarmed, Roy. Rush him to the decontamination room at once. Yes, sir. Don't worry, Mr. Rogers. We'll have you fixed up in a jiffy. Well, I can't understand it. I... What, sir? Well, how could I be radioactive? I didn't touch anything. Well, sir, sometimes... Wait a minute. The... I did touch something. What was that, sir? A small paperweight. A small, heavy paperweight. <laughs> heaven, you're back. What's the matter? Oh, it's Julia, Roy. She ain't showed up yet. Roy, I'm worried. She was so upset when she left. Hmm. Well, maybe we'd better drive over to the park and have a look around. Hi, everybody. Oh, Julia. Julia. Where have you been? We were so worried. I'm sorry if I worried you. The the night was so beautiful and clear, I, I just couldn't stop walking. Julia, you shouldn't be wandering around by yourself. Frankly, Mr. Forbes is very suspicious. Suspicious? Yes, he... He's even thinking about having you watched. Oh, Well, why? Well, there's something very mysterious about Paul's disappearance, the way he disappeared, and why. Forbes thinks that Paul may contact you. I see. Well, he's right. What do you mean? I... I didn't tell you the whole truth. I I haven't just been walking. Did you see Paul tonight? No. No, I didn't see Paul, but I... I saw a friend of his... He told me that Paul is safe and well, and, and as soon as possible, I'll be able to join him. Join him? Where? Up there. Up there. On one of those planets. You don't believe me, do you? You don't believe any of it. All right, Julia. Now, take it easy and, and tell us about it again. You say a spaceship landed in the park, and this this man came up to you? Yes. At least... Well, I guess he was a man. He he was wearing a heavy suit that covered him from head to foot, but he must have been a man because I, I understood what he said. Well, what did he sound like, dear? Sound like? Well, now that I think of it, I, I don't believe he spoke at all. Not really spoke, but I, I, I could hear him. Julia, you're upset. This disappearance of Paul. I'm not crazy. I'm not upset and I'm not losing my mind. I didn't imagine it. I didn't. All right, dear. Paul is safe and well, and I'm going to join him. He said so. Did he say when you could join Paul? No. Just for me to be ready at, at any time. Well, I, I suppose it's possible, but... Possible? Oh, of course it's possible. I'm surprised at you. Who are you calling, Roy? Mr. Forbes. I think I should tell him something. Oh, you're wasting your breath, Roy. He'll never believe my story. Hello? Mr. Forbes? 
This is Roy Rogers. Oh, no. No, I'm fine. The decontamination boys took care of everything. No, she's back now. Yes? Yes, I've talked to her. Well, the first thing I think you should do is to have that paperweight analyzed. The paperweight on Paul's desk in his room. Yes, I do. I think you might find it very interesting. Another planet, huh? Well, that's quite a story. I think we'd better have Mrs. Sanders put under observation at once. Well, she said you wouldn't believe her. Roy, I'm a practical man. I have to be. It'd be so easy to accept this fantastic explanation and let it go at that, but... Ah, guten Tag, Herr Rogers. Come in, Professor. Roy has just told me a fantastic story. Oh, really? Mrs. Sanders claims to have seen a spaceship and a man from space. She says that Paul Sanders is on another planet, and she's going to join him. I see. And do you believe this story, Herr Rogers? Well, I don't completely doubt it. I... I think it's possible. Ach so? Good. You're a very smart man, Herr Rogers. Oh, now, Professor, don't tell me you believe it. I have had this theory for some time now, Herr Forbes. But why is the whole idea so impossible for you to accept? Our government is spending millions of dollars a year investigating, photographing, and pursuing or trying to what they have chosen to call UFOs unidentified flying objects. During the past years, many persons have mysteriously disappeared from the face of Earth, never to be seen again. And you actually believe that these people were taken to another planet? Some of them, perhaps. As I said before, it is not impossible. All right. You stick to your theory and I'll stick to mine. The first thing I'm going to do is put a 24-hour watch on Julia Sanders. I have another suggestion, Herr Forbes, before you waste your time. Yes? Why don't you give Mr. Sanders a lie detector test? The Roy Rogers Show went off the air on July 21st, 1955. His television series ran until June 9th, 1957. You do not have to submit to this test unless you want to. Yes, I understand. And from what I've been told, the results may or may not be satisfactory. We're all ready if you are. All right, Doctor. We'll wait right here, Julia. Now, try to keep calm, will you? Don't you worry, Dale. I'm not afraid. Not in the least. By 1955, radio's days as America's chief entertainment medium were over. However, while radio drama was dying out, UFO sightings were becoming more prevalent. Some were so outlandish they were hard to believe. Others were chillingly real. For example, on September 19, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill had a widely known abduction experience. The Hills saw a huge flying disc while driving home one night on Route 3 in New Hampshire. They later awoke back in their car with missing time 
something common for abductees. Hypnosis later revealed they were abducted and medically examined by small extraterrestrials. What added to the Hills' credibility was the fact that both were afraid to tell their story. They were an interracial couple and concerned it would hurt their credibility as they were active in the civil rights movement. Their experience was most certainly not for publicity. In recent years, unidentified aerial phenomena has been verified by various world governments and the public's fascination with the mystery remains. Well, it's a good thing that the subject of our next Breaking Walls episode knows how to get to the bottom of a hard-boiled mystery. I drove almost to Malibu and then I parked and walked out on a rock cliff jutting into the Pacific Ocean. Then I reached in my pocket and dug out the string of bohemian glass pearls that Lieutenant Ibarra had found in Waldo's car. I cut the knot at one end and slipped the pearls off one by one. One by one, I flipped them into the water. The gull swooped down on them and then flapped up again, screaming indignantly. The phony pearls had fooled Waldo and Lola Barsley, but they couldn't fool a seagull. I said to myself, to the memory of Johnny Dalmas, just another four-flusher. I listened a while to the wheeling seagulls. All at once, I realized that the wind had died. The Santa Ana had blown itself out. The red wind was done. It was over. You have just heard Van Heflin starring in the first of a new mystery series, Raymond Chandler's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, brought to you by the Lever Brothers Company, makers of Pepsodent. There's a saying old says that love is blind. Still we're often told, seek and ye shall find. So I'm going to seek a certain lad I've had. Next time on Breaking Walls, we head back to the summer of 1947, as for the first time in a major series, Raymond Chandler's famous detective, Philip Marlowe, signs on the air. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, UFOs and the Government, a Historical Inquiry, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine, BBC News Magazine, Life Magazine, The Los Angeles Times, and Radio Daily. On the interview front, Alice Fay, Jim Jordan, Elliot Lewis, and Lorene Tuttle spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. 
John Gibson, Jim Jordan, and Arnold Moss spoke to Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these full interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Jim Jordan also spoke with John Dunning for his 71 KNUS program from Denver. Lillian Bayef and Sam Edwards spoke to Spurvac. For more info, go to spurvac.com. Elliot Reed spoke with Frank Brzee. And Red Skelton spoke with Deanie Petty. Selected music featured in today's episode was I Put a Spell on You by Screaming Jay Hawkins Pyramid of the Sun by Les Baxter What a Fool I Was by Percy Mayfield Happy Trails to You by Dale Evans and Roy Rogers And Someone to Watch Over Me by Blossom Deary Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen For Ted, go to radiomemories.com For Jerry, visit otrsite.com And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. You know, when I was 12 years old, I discovered a book of Raymond Chandler's short stories. His character, Philip Marlowe, connected with me in a way that, frankly, no other fictional detective ever has. I'm very happy to say that Breaking Walls episode 130 will spotlight the 1947 summer replacement series, The New Adventures of Philip Marlowe, starring Van Heflin. This episode will be available beginning August 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen you can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And please support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until August 1st, my name is James Scully saying, hey, remember to look up. You never know what you might see. This has been Breaking Walls episode 129. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Be the man some girls think of as handsome. To my heart, he'll carry. Watch over